three, two, one. It is Atwood Unleashed 98. And we've just had the breaking news that Meghan Markle is not going to attend King Charles' coronation. We've been discussing this for months on the channel with Matthew Steeples. It's been some of the most viral content. And I know we've got many viewers in America are tuned into this. Time difference. Some of you are getting up to date to this massive news because there was much speculation that they'd made all of these requirements, requests from King Charles about being in the balcony, who the kids were going to play with, whether they want to stay at Frogmore Cottage, etc. And negotiations were ongoing. But now it is confirmed that Meghan Markle is going to be staying at home with the kids. And Prince Harry is going to be attending the coronation service in London next month alone. Yes, so Archie and Lilibet will not be attending. Buckingham Palace has confirmed this dramatic news in a statement, saying it was pleased to confirm that the Duke of Sussex will be at Westminster Abbey on May 6th, but the Duchess will stay at home at the couple's residence in Montecito with Lilibet and Archie. And one of the points of negotiation was that it was Archie's birthday on the exact same day as the ceremony, and they were demanding that that would be acknowledged. Don't know if that was declined or what. The couple's friend, Omid Scobie, confirmed Archie's birthday played a factor, okay, in the couple's decision, and he expected it would be a fairly quick trip to the UK for Harry. (laughs) So Harry's just dropping in and out. He's on Dad's coronation, is he? The Duke will only attend the ceremony itself, which is likely to last a few hours. So, just over three weeks to the event, a royal observer said, quote, Charles will be pleased. <laughs> Is he going to be pleased <laughs> that Megan's not going? Um, the rest of the family will be relieved that Megan won't be there. It would have been particularly uncomfortable for Kate. I think one of the concerns of the royal family was that they were going to outshine the event, the presence of Harry and Meghan was going to outshine the event and all of the publicity would go to them. They had delayed their decision of whether they would fly in for the ceremony despite the RSVP date of April 3rd having passed. And the uncertainty over the attendance was thought to have left royal officials unable to sign off an arrangement for seating plans, transport and security. So there was pressure on them to let them know what was going to be happening. You know, all this stuff came out in Harry's book, Spur. It it created this wedge between him and the family. But Charles has always said, the bottom line is he's my son. And he he held out this olive branch. And people now will be watching to see whether there's some kind of reconciliation with Harry and Charles at this event with Meghan staying home. What do you think about all this, Stephen? (laughs) Hmm. I think, well, I've finally got something in common with Meghan Markle in that I'm not going to the coronation either. Uh, <laughs> that, that and I can't act. So there are two, two things I have in common with Meghan Markle. But I, I, I think maybe everyone's looking going to be looking for this big moment of reconciliation between Charles and Harry. And I just think it'll be very stoic, business as usual, very, you know, pomp and ceremony, very, very uh, stiff upper lip sort of thing. It does make you wonder, however, whether they have um, quietly been told not to bring 
Megan, or whether this is their own decision, 100% their own choice, or whether they're just using the kid's birthday as an excuse not to do something they really don't want to do. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm trying to care. Will you be out partying in the streets in Manchester, Stephen? It's possible I may be, but it certainly won't be because of the coronation. <laughs> so but thank, I, I appreciate the bank holiday uh, that I'll be enjoying for that. So yeah, to, to Charlie, everyone. So more quotes on this. Expect it to be a fairly quick trip <clears throat> to the UK for Prince Harry. who will only be attending the coronation ceremony at Westminster Abbey. ITV News Royal Editor Chris Shipp said, given everything that has been said alleged in six Netflix episodes and one book, this is a big development, but Harry coming alone does mean less pressure on the royal family and fewer of those awkward photographs together. Wow. <laughs> I think all royal photos are awkward, really, given they're all lizard people. I mean, they, they don't know they, they don't know how to human. They're all just they're wearing silly hats and costumes, and it's, it's weird. They're weird in general. So I think no matter what happens, the photos are going to be peculiar, and someone will read far too much into them. All right, huge thank you, viewers, for contributing to all of our polls. And one of the polls in the last week was as to whether Harry and Meghan should lose their royal titles. So we had, we got 10,000 votes overnight. 74% say yes, they should lose their royal titles. 9% said no, 6% uh, said no. 19% said don't care. And 1% put over and there was 200 comments on that one. Five days ago, we did a poll, will Madeline McCann be found? And if you saw our Madeline McCann podcast called, will Madeline McCann be found? We did with Mark Williams, Thomas, ex-sorry cop. He flew out to Portugal when the news broke. Um, we got 10,000 votes on that one over five days. 6% of you viewers think Madeleine McCann will be found. 93% think Madeleine McCann will never be found. 2% put over and there was 400 comments on that subject. So thank you for everyone who took the time to leave a comment. Now we've got a few minutes left before we do bring in the first guest. We're going to be talking about the royal news and other royal matters with historian, broadcaster, author, and royal commentator, Dr. Tessa Dunlap, making her debut on the show tonight. She's written several books, presented history programs to the BBC, Discovery Channel Europe, Channel 4, UK TV, and History Channel. And her recent book is called Elizabeth and Philip, A Story of Young Love, Marriage, and Monarchy. And the next guest, Chris, will be with Stephen. Yeah, I'll be joined by Chris Leto between seven and eight. And I was chat with Chris. He's a retired F-16 pilot and currently writes books and makes YouTube videos. Uh, his background and training allows him to provide a new and unique viewpoint to the recent UAP sightings, Chinese spy balloons and how Kiev astronomers have tracked UAPs in the skies. So getting right into the UFOs with Chris. And then yeah, we're switching over to Patreon, I believe. Well, you've got Emma Jane Taylor. Yeah, so from 10 past 8, I'll be speaking to, speaking to activist and public speaker Emma Jane Taylor. Uh, they'll be starting the patron section for us this evening. Uh, Emma Jane is currently campaigning for better protection for young lives and a change in the thought process around CSA. Uh, she is an ardent uh, campaigner aiming to influence real change. 
Her TEDx talk, It's Not Just Strangers We Should Be Afraid Of, reflects on how it is often family, friends, or relatives that are the abusers. Mm, what a nightmare. Yeah. Sounds like she's doing some good work. Final guest at 910 on Patreon, author Bruce de Torres. Last guest, and he's got God, School, 9-11, and JFK. And he's going to expose the lies that are killing us and the truth that sets us free. His book describes how the lies of these events prove that our government was hijacked by elites who stripped away our rights, waged wars of aggression, and accumulated unspendable riches as they sought to rule the world. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been doing on your Substack this week? Well, I got on a five-hour coach trip to London on Easter Sunday. I think it's what Jesus would have wanted, to be fair, uh, because there were no trains running due to engineering work to cover. Uh, Posey Parker, a.k.a. Kelly J. Keane's Let Women Speak event in uh, Speaker's Corner, Hyde Park. A big turnout, diverse group of people. I mean, it's usually middle-aged women that attend these things, not a criticism, just an observation. But this time around, there seems to be a, a lot of fresh young faces in the mix, which makes me think her message is uh, spreading far and wide. And what was especially noticeable for me as well was that not a single counter protester turned up. I don't know if you saw last week or the, the week before, she was doing the same thing in New Zealand. And uh, many of the p women that turned up there were assaulted, intimidated. Kelly J. Keen herself was doused with. Um, it was tomato soup and had to be escorted away by the police just for wanting to speak at an event publicly. So uh, it was nice to see uh, a peaceful event in London and there was a heavy police presence as well, keeping any trouble causes away. So you took a long trip to come down south, didn't you? That's right, yeah. F five hours on a coach, on a coach because of uh, train engine. I could have flown to Mexico, <laughs> 10 hour round trip to London. Uh, but, you know, it's always worth it to do some reporting because what I find is very few mainstream journalists will, will turn out to document these things. They just tend to judge it from afar in a column later on. So it's nice to be there on the ground and speak to people and, and get some perspectives. How many times have you covered Speaker's Corner now, Stephen? Must be five or six for various different things. A couple of the gender critical events, a couple of free speech events. I think perhaps a Tommy Robinson event down there at one point. So yeah, fair few things. Which one was the most animated? Tommy Robinson tends to attract a lot more interesting characters. I don't want to be dismissive of uh, his fans as a whole, but you do get some colourful individuals there who are not entirely... Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd say enthusiastic about speaking to people with cameras. They tend to see the media as one thing and assume that I'm some sort of BBC journalist who's looking, looking to stitch them up. And what's your plans? What subjects are you covering in the coming weeks? I have uh, a gentleman called Matt Johnson on my show. He's wrote a book about the late, great Christopher Hitchens. He'll be telling us how we can look to the work of Christopher Hitchens to help us reinvigorate the left and liberalism, if that indeed is something you think needs to happen. So we're going to be bringing in our guest shortly to talk about the royal family and royal news. Just having a look at some of the comments here. Um, we've got a comment from Sebastian. This entire Harry Meghan travesty is nothing more than a PSYOP deep state. Kabuki theatre. You're familiar with Kabuki theatre, Stephen? It's not. Uh, I've not heard of that. No, that's, that's that new to me. 
Kabuki, let's have, let's look that one up, shall I? Kabuki. Yes. Guilty to learn something here. Classical form of Japanese theatre, mixing dramatic performance with traditional dance. Known for okay. its heavily stylized performances, glamorized, highly decorated costumes, and for the elaborate kumadori makeup worn by some of its performers. Always learning. Sebastian, thank you. I now have an expansion of my lexicon, thanks to you. I'm going to drop that into an interview later, see if I can work Kabuki Theatre into one of my <laughs> interviews, just as a challenge, Sebastian, just for you. <laughs> Blue Nomad pointed out it's Japanese, uh, and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Jocelyn is aggrieved by our first guest. This is where I exit. Thank you. Whoa. Let's see anyone else got any um, comments on the Royals? Let me do a quick poll. Can you let us know, viewers? Oh, are you glad? Are you glad that Meghan Markle is not attending the coronation? Put a one. Do you think that's the right thing? Or not to attend? If you are highly distressed that Meghan Markle is not attending the coronation, can you please put a two in the chat? Let us know where your alliance lies. Wands coming in. Looks like most of the viewers did not want to see Meghan Markle attending the coronation. Yeah, it's it's uh, unanimously wands on YouTube. Paul Reed on Facebook. We got a three from Russell. Is three? I don't care by any chance. Don't care from Holly. <laughs> Number two from CCR thinks it would be more intriguing if Megan was there. All right, we're going to bring in the first guest. So, Stephen, we will see you in an hour or so. See you soon. Cheers. Hey, Tessa, thank you so much for joining Hello. us. Hello. Good evening. How are you? Yeah, we're doing great, thank you. We appreciate you spending time. And we've had this breaking news today about Meghan Markle not attending the coronation. Before we get to that, though, could you just tell the viewers a little bit about you and your work? Well, this afternoon, I got back from a flight from Romania, and so I thought I'd just have a little kit before the highlight of my day, Sean Atwood. And uh, so I went to bed, <laughs> as one does, a lady of leisure, and I woke up thinking, gosh, I never knew I had so many ex-lovers trying to contact me all at one time. And it was just a press pack responding to the Harry story. But I had to say, I can't talk to you between six and seven. I'm doing an exclusive with Sean Atwood. <laughs> well, we, we do really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Can you, you share... cost me a fortune, Sean. Did you hear that? You cost me a fortune. <laughs> I'm a woman of her word. Here I am. So I have I've written, oh, it's come out in America just last week, um, Elizabeth and Philip, which people think, well, they're ancient history. We've moved on to Harry and Meghan. But actually, <laughs> the royal narrative um, is one continuum. And our expectations for the present are very much informed by the past. So I've done a sneaky little four-word update with the Harry and Meghan bomb for my British paperback out at the end of the month. Because actually, I think the problem with, with Elizabeth and Philip was it was all teed up like the perfect family, the perfect couple. Not the perfect family, not the perfect couple, clearly. I love the fact, by the way, Sean, 
she was the perfect grandmother everyone you know we, for all of us she was like the you know the apple-cheeked old woman you know oh she's like oh look with a handbag oh the queen oh and she talked to us in the pandemic and there was definitely like incredible it was impressive she went out there and did her thing so a woman who didn't even hug her grandson i mean she was a pretty cold fish in the maternal uh, context and yet she never got any flack for it every other woman under the planet is berated for the activities of her womb they're on in but not the queen have you noticed oh wait that's just somebody else wanted to talk about harry i've just turned her down um so i i have issues with the way the queen is exempt from all criticism and everyone else is kind of get gets the mudslinging and i think we need obviously she's only just died um, but but I think there will be quite serious revision in the years to come. We'll see considerable revision. It was quite hard, incidentally, writing a book and publishing it just as the Queen had died. I had to be quite careful about walking that tightrope, you know, of sensibility, public sensibility, really. Do you want to speak now? Because I've talked an awful lot. Well, can I put my book in vision briefly? Go on. Yeah, the please American do. The, Ameri well, the interesting thing about the psychology of the Americans is this. Oh, dear, I forgot to paint my nails. I'll just hide them. Um, so this is like the couple out there performing to the public, whereas the British publisher chose this intimate example of them looking in at each other. I think that's so American, isn't it? It's always you play out your emotions publicly. But actually, they were much better at doing that, I think, out there at the public as a, as a, a double act than they were alone, you know, behind closed doors. So all of Dr. Dunlop's links are in the description box, including the link for the book. It's mm. in the chat. Ash has just posted it in the chat. So my first question would be then, mm. do you think that when someone has this unique job that the Queen had, they have to shut yeah. down emotionally to perform that duty? Is it a sacrifice? I think that... You know, emotions are messy. I don't know about you, Sean, but I'm a, an emotionally messy person. I dump my emotions left, right and centre. And I, you know, then have to go around picking up the pieces. I spend a lot of time with sort of existential angst about what I've just said, what I've overshared, how I've behaved. It's a nightmare in the pandemic because I'm very MTF, must touch flesh and all that stuff. So um, the Queen, no hugging. You know, when, when she went off, so when she gets, uh, she's coronated, I think she's 26, 1953. She's got a son, Charles, who's, Rising five, I think, or it might have been five already, born in 48, so you do the mass five, I think he was by the time they went off and they're tall, um, just turning five. And Anne, who was 18 months younger than him, so she leaves their two tots um, behind and goes off on this six month tour. And we all go, bravo, well done, the queen, off she going, you know, pushing it for Britain, great. First working mum, 50s was a really regressive decade. And Charles sets off in the Britannia, which is this finished, you know, yacht that becomes very controversial later with his sister. And off they go to meet their mother as she's coming up, I think off uh, up this um, one side of Africa, the west coast of Africa, I think it was, I can't remember. And um, she, she in parks the Britannia and, and off Charles gets, he hasn't seen his mum for six months and she manages a handshake and he has to wait to properly have tea with her. She goes off to see King Farouk because I mean, it's some kind of local king. And um, it's just so symptomatic of her entire relationship with her son really, is that it was second to monarchy. Monarchy was the biggest gig and it, and it was like that in their marriage as well they had a mission and the mission for the us humble folk who are just grouting around trying to make our marriage work I mean I suppose up there's monogamy we try and be faithful and we then try and stay married under that umbrella uh, but none of us have the bigger pull which is monarchy and that was their that was their big uniting mission for, for Philip and the Queen and I think one of the reasons you went so sort of horribly wrong for Harry and Meghan is Meghan didn't have that she's like what monarchy what is this I'm prettier than Kate what I one I number one 
you know, it's kind of Harry's more charismatic than William. This is ridiculous. You know, it didn't make sense to that kind of meritocratic mentality. But to Philip, who's an exile prince, wow. You know, just just everyone. You know, I was quite sexist. Well, I'll stop talking now and let you talk for a bit. How does Ash, it work? Ash, Ash has just sent me a message asking if you can get any closer to your mic. Oh, am I not close? Am I not on the mic? I should be on the mic. I can hear you fine. Am I not on the mic now? I can hear you, can you hear me? fine. Can I you can not hear me, Ash? Ash has asked. Can the viewers here testify? Yeah, keep, oh, keep going. Oh, nice keep microphone. Going. Will I put it in vision? Look, it's massive. Will I put it in front of my face? <laughs> I can hear you perfectly fine. I'm, I'm not sure what the interruption was for. All right, let's keep going. So are you saying then that this, you know, this lack of emotion was passed down to Charles and this is what yes. Harry is complaining about, that these guys mm -hmm. are devoid of the human soul? They are reptilian, shape-shifting lizard people? <laughs> oh, Sean, did you just call them lizard people? You are a <laughs> Like the, the in comparison to like lizards have no emotion, you know, they're just <laughs> posh. I mean, I don't know how many posh people you have in your family. I've got some posh people in my family. I'm, I'm, my, my grandfather had an affair with the Duchess of Buccleuch. She's only about one away from royalty. Posh people, they're, aristocrats have loads of sex, by the way, but they don't really do warmth. And I, they don't really approve, like someone dies, they don't have what, the, what they refer to as the working class incontinent face doesn't exhibit emotion if someone dies and holds it together you know likewise you know if this this is a bit old school this interpretation of aristocracy but certainly it was kicking around mid-century when charles was growing up but weirdly it was a it was a hangover in the arist among aristocrats and royalty and they sent their children off to boarding school i mean my father was sent off to boarding school at six his mother didn't even visit him when he had mumps so it wasn't just the royal family. This was the kind of mentality of the upper classes. Remember, for 200 years, they'd been going off to run the empire, leaving their children behind at the boarding schools to get a good thrashing. I mean, so this is none of this. None of this kind of new. It's, it's, it, it was all inherited. So we can't blame the royal family. Poor old royal family get all the blame because they're the sort of last relic of this intense class-ridden hierarchical system. All the other lords are getting tipped out of the House of Lords and, you know, debunked. Half of them aren't even getting into the coronation these days, dusting off their ermine robes. Whereas we love the royal family. We've turned them into our greatest soap opera, so they get all the blame. But I think it is true that there was a lack of, of physical warmth and contact. There has to be. If you're sending... Do you have children, Sean? Um, due to my trolls, I can't comment about family matters. You can't Let's comment, right? Okay, yeah, trolls yeah. are unpleasant, aren't they? But anyway, I'm just suggesting that if you have children, it's quite a tough gig sending them away to boarding school at about six, which is what most aristocrats do. Some of them still do. So you're gonna, you're not, you know, you're gonna probably, you know, the, the attachment theory developed in the 50s. The Queen was probably working up her detachment theory, but actually, <laughs> even. Even before, you know, Charles going to boarding school and all that stuff and her going off on tour, she prioritised her marriage over her children. And that generation of women generally did. They, my great grandmother followed her husband to, to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and left her children behind. Um, and could we know that? Because when Philip was in Malta, having a high old time, looking really rather sexy, there's a really good looking in my book, I'm just going to show you actually, of him with his torso exposed looking really handsome in Malta 
Now, two prizes for guessing why the Queen didn't want to leave him in Malta on his own too long. Doesn't take a... Oh, no, they haven't got it in the American version. Maybe they weren't prepared to pay for it. I'll have to get you the British version. Wait a sec. Two okay, sets. no worries. <laughs> here we go. The Americans. That's a bit tight, isn't it? Right, wait a sec. Here we go. Are you excited about seeing this picture now, Philip? Can't wait. His out. He was a hunk oh, back I in the day. I can't find it. He was so good looking. But there he is there. Look, can you see that? Him rowing. Yes. You see it. Agreed. See, looking, eh? So no prizes for guessing why the Queen wanted to keep her an, an eye on him. So she leaves Charles and Anne at Sandringham with Granny and with with um Granny and Grandpa George the Sixth and and Elizabeth. They're all called the same name. And she goes and keeps her eye on on Philip at, at, in, during the Christmases in forty eight and forty nine stuff. So, so no, not forty eight, forty nine and fifty. So this idea that oh, it was only because of her queenly duties. It's not true. It wasn't only because of her queenly duties. It was also because she 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 prioritised husband, and um she prioritised and husband had to stick with her, and they had to stay married for monarchy. And remember that mon they were and also Sean they were stuck up there as the ideal couple after the war. All this you know kind of moral deterioration that had been seen during the war. People getting divorced, having sex out of marriage. Philip and Elizabeth getting married in forty seven was this pure new model. The way Britain did it differently from America. And they led a record number of people down the aisle in 47. And, and then it's held up perfect, perfect. Nobody really knows what's going on behind closed doors. Old Philip. I mean, you know, he loved a lovely lady. And that sets up Charles and Anne and Andrew just to fall from a very great height in the 80s and 90s. Because it wasn't a perfect marriage, but the press left them alone. And then um, in, in come the children and it all goes wrong. But th this frozen idea that, that family monarchy has to be this perfect family and it becomes horribly unstuck. And I don't think it's ever really been fully stuck back together again. I mean, Harry is not just a product of his mother dying, but he's a product of a really nasty split, isn't it? I mean, Charles and Diana had a, a brutal public, private divorce. I mean, you just wouldn't have wanted to be a child in that divorce, I don't think. Can you imagine all the things that Harry learned over the years that had actually gone on with, yeah. with Charles and Camilla, you know, prior to the wedding and everything else, so how that must have affected him psychologically? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's in some ways that we're always giving him a. I mean, you, you, you're not very nice about him, are you? Let's be honest. What do you? I mean, what do your views? I bet they come down heavily against Harry. I, I don't know. I'm not. Well, we can ask that. them right I mean, now. What what question have you got for yeah. them? Okay. Well, does anybody have sympathy for Harry? And I think he's very brave coming to the coronation because our press here in Britain, we smash Harry and actually he's going to have to, the awkwardness, you know, it's a bit like the child who's behaved really badly at dinner. He's gone up to his bedroom. He's sitting there sulking. That's why it's taken so long. He doesn't want to come to the coronation. He knows it's going to be, a, he's got to come back out of the bedroom, back down to the dinner table. That is the metaphor, literally. And in he has to go, he has to rub shoulders with all those, you know, slightly plain also ran royals when he thinks he's a bit Hollywood. Hasn't got his wife backing him up. She's like, I'm out there, mate. That's your problem. That's your, you know, you know, weird British you know kind of antique problem and I, I take my health I think it's quite a brave move and not only has he got that going on he's also got our press just longing for him to trip up or make a mistake or say something wrong at least I don't think he'll get as booed now he won't be as booed let's ask the viewers viewers put a one in the chat if you have sympathy for Harry put a two in the chat if you have no sympathy for Harry and we will put some of these on the screen so Neom 
no sympathy. He made his bed. He can lie in it. Harry sucks. What they said. Harry sucks. He's a loser. Children are always. <laughs> children always, if you're allowed to be uh, uh, casualties of relationship breakdowns. Yeah, but that would come on. Charles and Diana was in a league of its own, guys. How can people even say that? He's not my cup of tea, but if none, none of them are, if honest, from Paul. Paul's in Cheshire. Hello, Paul. Matt doesn't feel we sorry. We don't feel All I, I would like to say, you know, when you get, uh, you trained from birth to do a job, they were in this weird bubble. Of course, he's a narcissist. He was born in a goldfish bowl. What's going on here? We literally reared him like a weird species, like all of them. They're these weird species we keep in a cage in this goldfish bowl. Okay. And, and then, and then we can't understand when in this Petri dish that we've been like overlooking at, sort of like children breathing on the Petri dish, watching, watching, when it kind of goes, it's like Frankenstein's monster, when it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> and then when he tries to leave, and obviously he can't leave because he's forever in the goldfish bowl. It's like the Truman Show. And we go, oh, he's not left. Why can't he just go away and be normal? Because his training isn't normally, he's not trained to be a plumber. He only knows how to do two things, fly an Acapache helicopter. What are they called, those helicopters? Well, he can't do that anymore, can he? Or be in the royal family and talk about it. I mean, for goodness sake, we've got to cut him some slack. I really think we need to cut. I mean, and also the other thing is he doesn't know how to be normal in terms of his wealth. He expects to have in limitless cash. And the only way he's ever going to have enough money is by talking royal, royal, I was going to say bollocks. Can I say bollocks as it's a YouTube channel? Yeah. And Liz has got a question for you, Tessa. She wants yeah. to know how can I put William... my lipstick on? Yeah. Go for it. How come William yeah. is okay? Liz wants to know. How do we know William is okay? The difference is, Liz. Hi, Liz. I like Liz. Is she your first woman who's just commented? Hi. Are you mainly a male channel, just out of interest? Anyway, no, on Royal Commentary, it's 50-50. Isn't it? Okay. Well, a lot of Liz, Americans. The thing is about, Americans. The thing is about Willie. Is there a lot of those good? Because America's one of my books out without the picture of Philip. American oh. edition. Anyway. Cheaped you on the pick, though. Can I just... <laughs> let's stick up with... Stick with uh, William. William is has always had this very clear goal that he's going to be king and I think I don't know about you but I get up in the morning and I think oh god what will I do today I'm a freelancer I should write a book about that or I should maybe talk to Sean Atwood or god the indecision cripples me you know if somebody just told me Tessa you know you've got to do this this and this my day would be much easier and the thing what William's got that so many of us lack except for like gynecologists or like I don't know top FBI agents or something he has a really clear mission doesn't he? Like he's got a goal. He's going to be king because he's got a proper belt and braces job and he just has to behave well. He knows he's going to have lots of soft power. He can talk about global warming all he likes. I mean, I'd love to have a platform to talk about global warming. I've got a bit of funny hair. You know, he's kind of got the ideal gig. He doesn't have to say much. He just has to nod and smile nicely at people before he goes into a building. He's got a pretty wife. He's got lots of money. Yesterday, my flight was cancelled. I had a nightmare. He doesn't have to put up with any stuff like that. He doesn't have to worry really even about whether his wife's bought the loo roll or whether the cat's been fed. I mean, it's an okay life. And he gets all the, the, the top jobs, the top gigs. It's, a, it's an incredible privilege, William's role. Harry, meanwhile, because we know what siblings are like, is always like, but I'm never going to be the big deal my brother is. I mean, imagine it's bad enough having a big brother. I know I've got one without always having to be behind him and supporting him. 
I don't know why we therefore think William is all right. We don't know what goes on behind doors with close, with, with William. We know that he, you know, he's got a temper. Mind you, I've got a bit of a temper, but w William's got a temper. So we know that. So it's not a picnic, is it always? But also he went through a horrible divorce and his, his mother died. So it'd be a bit odd if he was perfect, wouldn't it? I think he's probably got quite a long-suffering wife. I think we do know that. Kate the long-suffering. William, alarming balding. Kate the long-suffering. That's how I'm going to re-refer to them. I mean, she, she's in there for the long term, isn't she, old Kate? Unique opportunity right now, live with Dr. Tessa Dunlop. If you've got questions, put them in the chat wherever you are in the world. My question is, Tessa, what brings your temper out? Oh, God, why? One shouldn't, yeah, one shouldn't always talk about men talking over me. <laughs> My husband. Um, men older sexist men normally quite right wing i was in in parliament the other day giving a talk um it was about romanian the romanian diaspora in britain totally off subject here by the way uh, it's just really weird that the two men the diplomat the british diplomat to Bucharest, an older man the tory mp sitting next to him an older man and they just sort of they got to sum up they got to you know close down what's it called when you conclude a night you can uh, you know when they you round up the night i don't know what's got an expression i mean i just suddenly felt Oh, it's always men. I felt like Megan. Boo, boo. <laughs> I didn't do that. But... Did reading spur? Did, did reading spur bring your temper out? Reading spur. Oh, reading spare. Gosh, it's spur. your accent, isn't it? Your flat vowels, isn't it? No, Is spur or spare? I'm, I'm from near Manchester originally. Oh yeah, yeah, very nice. Yeah. Um, just can we go back to William and Balding? Because you're bald. I mean, obviously, we can see that. Um. Did, do you think it's difficult for him? Is it was it difficult for you losing your hair? Probably depends what age. You know, I had the George Michael full quiff, blow dried, dyed blonde, and then when that started yeah. coming out, I, I was heartbroken. But the rave scene began. I shaved my head, and then I didn't have to fart around with shampoo and all those products and the, the hair dryer, and it added value to my life. I think not wasting all my time over my hair. Did it? Okay, that's interesting. But the other thing is, William's never going to be part of the rave scene, is he? That's the problem <laughs> with William. You know, it's just kind of cruel. It's like, oh, of course he should have just, you know, done the bus cart and got over with. But he would have looked weird with a sort of, you know, RAF one military uniform bus cart. You know, but by the way, Harry, watch Harry's hairline because it is not going to recede any more than it's receded. It's going to be Hollywooded for the rest. Of I bet you that that hairline is frozen in time. No, somebody said Harry's balding. He is balding, but he won't bald any more than he's balded because there's lots of things you can do now. And 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 obviously William and Kate being quite old-fashioned decided not to do those things that you can do. But Megan's on it, isn't she? I mean, that's just my hunch, but I think Megan's on it with Harry. That's so, my so feeling. Can, can, I don't know how anyone else feels about Harry's hairline, but... Can we get your thoughts on Spur then? Spa, oh, Spa. Spur. Um, well, no, I thought it was, I, I loved it on the Queen where he admitted he found he was afraid. He used the word afraid of the Queen. He was, he basically missed, he was intimidated of his grandmother. So well, I, that was interesting because up until that point, Harry had not gone there on the Queen because he knows the Queen's the Queen, isn't it? Like I said at the beginning, we don't touch the Queen. Back off the Queen. Un unless it's Queen Camilla, of, um, in which case gloves are off. But um, but with I thought he was interesting on his he loved his granny, respect his granny, but he was intimidated by her. I mean, grannies can be a bit intimidating, that's true, but it, it this was was not in any way a normal relationship. There was no normal relationships in Harry's life, except arguably with William. 
I mean, uh, that's one of the, you just asked me who made me, makes me angry. Both my brothers gladly swing for them sometimes. Obviously, other times I really love them. But like, they're my brothers, do you know? We're just like playground stuff. They're, they're big too, they're brutes. They're both six foot five. <laughs> wow. and, it's like, and, and I think that's the one normal relationship he had. And even the dysfunction. I mean, I went, when I was doing IVF, I went mad and basically I didn't speak to my brother for two I was jealous because he hadn't I had two children. I just decided not to speak to him for a few years. And that's the great thing about it, siblings. You can oh honey there, yeah, I've got a baby now. Yeah, I'm happy now. You know, and you can pick up and drop off. And that's I hope that's what Harry and William do. But there's a bit more riding at stake with because it's not just a family, it's an institution. So what do you think about his revelations in Spur about the Royals? thought some of it was a bit unnecessary i thought the book was cleverly written i liked some of the shakespearean references i thought he chose a very good ghostwriter i quite like you know some of the stuff on his dad he's quite gentle on his dad but you know really not really being equipped to be a parent let alone a single parent i mean i think we probably all feel a bit like that you know oh you're like smashed up when you have a child aren't you and then the idea of doing it alone that would be super intense especially when you, you know you've not got your own stuff sorted but none of us do so i thought it was quite human charles came out of, I, I felt came out of it quite quite well and this i like knowing about the eau de cologne and and, and you know the, the fish and chips under the big silver what are they called those i should know this I, I, I came back on from romania yesterday what's that silver dish the thing you put on top of food to keep it covered Oh, I'm sure the viewers the can help you out thing. with that. They can. You know, there's a big name for them. So here we go, posh restaurants. They, we never had those growing up in Manchester. In Manchester. Yeah, <laughs> for goodness sake. You need one for your bald head. One of those things, right? So, <laughs> Question from so Blue Skies. Yeah. Does Tessa mm. think that Meghan and Harry will last? Uh, in the short term, yeah, I do. I think they'll last in the short term. I don't know in the long term. He's got a lot of stuff to work through. On the at the moment, he's on a big mission. Megan's really helped him, I think, sort of find a new way. He's a bit evangelical, isn't he, about his new path and his therapies and his hallucinogenics. Um, and his new wife, his touchy-feely wife that he gets to hug, all that jazz. I mean, he's totally in love with her, isn't he? I mean, I don't know how much she's in love with him, but probably. I mean, she he added a lot. You know, he gave her uber star power. I mean, I know everyone says, oh, they've gone down in the polls, but we're all talking about them all the time. Their clickability is immense. You know, their, her money-making power is sorted for the rest of life. Megan's always going to get a couple of little shows stateside that she'd have never got if she's just some B-lister in suits. So I think together they are bigger than the sum of their parts at the moment. Whether that will remain the case and whether, but you know, statistically you're more likely to get divorced if you come from divorced parents. They both come from, you know, uber divorced parents but I but I but on the other hand you know they clearly bonded partly because of the pain they both experienced in their childhood I mean it doesn't take a pop psychologist to work that one out um I I, I worry in the long term I tell you one of the reasons I worry and I've seen it with um, my own relations who have lived abroad you know away from family and, and sort of your your support mechanisms that you have growing up is this, it's quite a, if you cut away from your family like both of them have done neither of them are particularly close with any of their family members that makes you quite isolated and it puts a lot of pressure on the relationship so if you don't have your auntie mabel or your sibling or someone to just go stop being a total dickhead you know i think that that makes it quite that's a quite a lot of pressure on on a marriage on a relationship and especially when a large part of the marriage is played out in public that could go wrong but 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 you know it's one of the great unknowables it's what, what it's what will keep us clicking i know sean um because i did obviously extensive research not just into your hairline but into your show that you had on the other day somebody who watches when they see megan and harry together what's it like 
is one of your royal watchers. Can't remember who oh, it is. Watchers. Anyway, he, yeah, you had him on saying that Harry and Meghan hadn't been seen together for ages. So I mean, there is such have, a big house. We've had um, Matthew Steeples on talking He's about royals. We had Matthew Steeples on. We've had might be Matthew Steeples. It was a bloke anyway. He was saying that they hadn't been seen together for ages. Is this, you know, I mean, it's honestly it's ridiculous stuff just for clicks. I mean, it's like the opposite of that is us all presuming Harry and William were so close. Why? Because three times a year at the Trooping of the Colour, Sandringham Christmas and I don't know, some funeral or, a, or an Easter service, we saw them photographed together. Growing up, you know, we saw them obligatory on their family holiday or going into Eton or... Yeah. Of course, so they seemed close because a bit like our photograph album. Like I said, I didn't talk to my brother for two years, but I was still photographed with him at Christmas, grimly at the other side of the room. You know, I, the point is that we just project onto these families that that play out publicly what we want. So I could show you lots of photographs of Harry and Meghan together and plenty of times when they're apart. Do we really know what's going down in their relationship? Are they having the marital weekly shag and the date night? We don't know. Let's not pretend we know. I did, by the way, manage to guess that she wasn't going to come to the coronation. I wish I'd put that down in the bookies, by the way. I would have made a small little win there. You should have done a good point about marriages in America not lasting, because I was in America for 16 years and none of my marriages in America lasted for very long. How many did you have in that time? Three. You were married three times in 16 years? Yeah, they lasted about three, two or three years each. How did you afford that? And that was Arizona, which is next to California. So perhaps, you know, that doesn't look well for them. I mean, divorce, I mean, divorces, <laughs> even today, I always think divorces for rich people or people with absolutely nothing. I cost a fortune. I couldn't divorce my husband. We discussed it once, you know, as you do leisurely when you're fighting each other really profoundly, yeah. about 10 years ago. Yeah, we weren't, I, I, we weren't fighting. Him. None of us were fighting. It was all amicable. So it didn't cost anything. Was it? Yeah. See, but Harry and Meghan, if they split their assets, I mean, it would make them, not only would they lose some of their star power, the magic fairy dust, but they'd have to, you know, that house they've got with the trees, the, the roots of the trees, the united together, which is why they bought the house. Don't you remember that little story? I'm sure you do, Sean, as a keen House of Montecito <laughs> fan. You know, what would they do? Chop yeah. down, have a tree each. I mean, it's divorce. That's not, they've sold us their love story. Their Netflix, Harry and Meghan, part of it was a love story. You know, we met on Instagram or whatever. Everyone looks good on Instagram. I fancy everyone I look I look at on Instagram. Anyway, we, we, um, interviewed, so, we, we interviewed Meghan's sister, Samantha, and she said that if they yeah. split, that, um, you know, Meghan's goal would be to marry a billionaire and try and become the president of America. That's the only thing that would satisfy her narcissistic supply. But I think she already could run. She doesn't need to get rid of Harry. If if they stay together, I think she's got a greater chance. It's about the American system. It's, yeah, they got rid of our king and, our, and they biffed Britain out of the equation a couple of hundred years ago. But they, they've got more or less an elected kingship. All the, you know, the White House and Air Force One and all the trappings weirdly go through this political position, which is always makes me love our royal family, because at least we, we don't have a, we can't have a Trump you know, stealing off with Buckingham Palace and kind of, you know, running asunder even our pomp and ceremony. At least it should pretend to stay politically neutral. The problem with the Harry and Meghan narrative is, and I know this from my TikTok and that, where it's them peeling off 
and heavily criticizing not just the British royal family, but also Britain. I mean, we, we've come up for a bit of stick, haven't we, basically, that we've been portrayed, ironically, from America, which I think has got worse race relations than Britain. We've been portrayed as, like, you know, fairly racist, pretty certainly certainly xenophobic if not racist as a nation certainly our press our fourth estate now um the point i was going to say i just totally lost my train of thought what what were we saying a second ago why did that matter Harry and Megan? You, you, you've got a question from rebecca as well uh we were talking about me. thanks Meghan. for saving me rebecca we were, we were talking about megan's uh aspirations but rebecca said just wonder how this is going to work out has been there's that's a lot of disdain to face public and private oh dear yeah, this is Harry. Yeah, but uh, that's why I think he's brave. Coming out of the bedroom and 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 being there at the coronation, putting up with our press, back in his family fold that's heavily criticized. That takes that takes a brass neck. I'm just telling you that I wouldn't want to be Harry on the 6th of May. And just to go back to, to Meghan, oh yeah, American, the American system. So in the American system, they love our trappings and our monarchy. What I was worrying about was that Harry and Meghan, what they've done is they've slightly politicised our monarchy without meaning to, because all the right-wing press, most of our press is pretty right-wing, have suddenly become these massive supporters of Camilla and Charles because they're so angry with Harry and Meghan. And you sort of think, gosh, Piers Morgan and Dan Wooten and the Daily Mail, they don't ever criticise Charles and Camilla. It's like they're perfect. And it makes people in the middle who are a bit more meh about their own family, like, whoa, you know, anything that, 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 that the right wing tabloids are really supporting must be something wrong with it. And it worries me slightly that we've almost kind of seen accidentally um, the our right wing narrative package the royal family as their own. And that, I think, in the long term will have a corrosive impact on the broad repeal of our monarchy. And it's partly because Harry and Meghan have been labelled as woke and uh, certainly in the ident world of identity politics, they're much more appealing to the young, the disaffected, ethnic minorities, et cetera, et cetera. And I find that like if I go on terrestrial telly and stick up for or put the other side, not stick up for Harry and Meghan, but they certainly I think occasionally have a point. The trolling I get on Twitter and stuff is horrific. But then I found I had this massive following on TikTok, which is a far younger audience. So it, it, it it's divided. And, and therefore, our royal family, what I'm trying to say, is no longer as apolitical as it was. But just quickly, I think that being married to Harry will certainly not do Meghan's chances of getting a political role, finding a political role. It won't do them any harm. I would stay married if I were her, if I wanted to uh, get anywhere near the White House. I'd stick with my dearly beloved redhead whose hair will never recede any further. I'm going to put money on that. Thank you for all your questions and comments, Julius. Please keep them coming in the chat. We've got Tessa talking about the royal family. We interviewed Lady Colin Campbell, and she said that... Oh, Meghan I know her. Had, she said Meghan had successfully monetized the royal family. Oh, do you know, Sean, all of us monetize the royal family why do we blame harry and Meghan, who are actually part of the royal family and have had to put up with all the nonsense from the other side for monetizing when that's what all of us do all the time well, how much, much monetization do they need don't they have enough there's never enough they're competing with the royal family <laughs> harry's competing with his brother sean sibling rivalry is with you till the grave it's like an ex it's like, you know, you never really forget wait, what your ex is doing, da, la, la, whatever. It's the same with a, with a sibling pack. They can, they're never going to be rich enough because Kate and William are going to get the throne. Unless, of course, the British economy carries on going down the swanny, you know. <laughs> Our tin pot monarchy will start looking like really it is made of tin once we've sold off the Canor diamond and the Cullinan diamond and goodness knows what else. But on a serious note, that Harry and Meghan will never have enough money. 
they will never have enough money because they've got to be seen to be making a success of it and they're comparing themselves to an institution of state one of britain's most famous most ancient institutions of state which accrued its valuables from centuries of uh, stomping around in other people's countries so they they can never have enough and i don't entirely blame them they're in a country which values wealth in a way that i think is quite alien to brits and incidentally i always find that disingenuous about british people because to be posh and send your child to a posh school and to fraternize with royalty you need to be rich but none of us really own the fact that you know it's hard work earning money and you have to sometimes be quite aggressive about the way you do it and i think the americans are much more honest about their embrace of money and I don't think, especially our aristocracy, realise just how hard it is to start from, say, Megan's space. What was she, a little middle class girl? Her dad was a lighting director to become as rich as she's become. I mean, hats off. Most Americans would think, even if they don't like her, they would think that is success. I so mean, don't isn't you? It isn't it possible that Harry could come to the throne? Isn't he like the vice president? If something happened to the president, he would. Ascend. No, because he's British. He's British, so you can't. You've got to be an American citizen. See, to have a political role, Harry would have to become an American citizen. And I think that's harder. I think it has to be more than that. I'm sure an American will correct me in the chat. Wasn't there that whole thing about the birth of scandal around Obama? I do not remember that Trump conspiracy theory about what whether I mean Obama is, what, what if something happened to What if something happened to William? Wouldn't Harry come to the throne? Oh, Harry, no, because he's because it would be George. Oh. Well, if there was a regency, so if something happened to William, so it, you'd have this is what would have to happen. Yeah. Um, because now in the way of the throne is William, George, Charlotte, Louis, he's miles away from the throne now. Harry. But the kid, a but, kid could come to the throne before Harry, then if he's still a kid, yeah. What you have then is a regency now, he's still oh. a council of state, so arguably. Hey arguably he could be in the region he could be in the regency but the whole point is they've made new councillors of state basically to make sure harry and andrew can't be councillors of state to edge them out because they're the embarrassing ones but um just quickly on on the children coming to the throne that also is never going to happen because the royal family live for so long now they've worked out the smoking kills you because the reason why all those kings in the 20th century died early is they all smoked like chimneys george the sixth at George V, they just died properly early because they smoked so much. But since they stopped smoking, they live forever because they have such a lovely life. So that means that Charles, I think I give him another 15 years at least, so 90, looking at his stock. And he's quite, you know, physically, he doesn't have a gut or, you know. Likes a glass of wine though, Charles, I'm told. That's a drink. His parents were very abstemious. Charles, um, Philip was so vain, you know, because he had the same um, waist measurement as when he was 19 as worth it when he was 90 that's our philip you know like i say gotta look good if you're philip um so, so you, charles yeah have you watched the, the malaysian uh the flight that disappeared ms 370 whatever it's called yes i did watch it quite a long time ago there's that that film yes so, say william and his entire that? family got on a flight like that could harry then come to the throne oh this is really dark Yes. No, heaven, for, heaven forbid, but I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to assess. It's the... super dark. If something terrible <laughs> happens, they're going to pin it on your show, Sean. <laughs> Funnily enough, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Philip's sister, Celine, her whole family got wiped out, bar a baby, I think. 
That's what I'm saying. Um, it can happen. There is, a, there is a remote possibility it, of these things happening. But it happened much more in the um, early 20th century when flying was far more dangerous. I mean, there was a, a terrorist incident, obviously, which we'll skip over. But I don't think that's likely to happen. I'm going to be honest. I don't I, I don't think we're going to lose all the Prince of Wales and his family in a one But if we did, yeah, then arguably Hazard could come back uh, and Megs could sit on the throne uh, with the, I don't I think she definitely wouldn't wear the Coronor diamond either, would she? No, she'd be far too politically correct. I wonder what she'd wear. But this is, I mean, it's it, it, it's it's so hypothetical. It's ridiculous, really. Um, Cheryl, he, that's, Cheryl has pointed out, I don't know if this is true, Cheryl has pointed out that they don't all fly together for that exact reason. But, but I don't know if that's true. Like when they go to their little skiing old Val, does they, are you telling me Prince William and Kate don't fly with their children? Don't they? I thought they were trying to be normal and go on chartered flights and stuff, don't they? Do they really not? I think she's talking about William. I'm talking about William, but I'm talking about William. Okay. When that family goes off on one of their little family holidays, Sean, Yeah. I don't believe they always travel separately. And they are I seen out as a family unit often. I think so for you don't just reasons, have to take someone out in a flight. For security reasons, they probably wouldn't ever let the public know, would they, their logistics? No. Blue? No, they wouldn't. Question from Blue. Did Maggie, did, what is this? Now, I object to this question, Sean, this question that's just come in about the surrogate. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's, it's weird. It's a weird question. Like, why does anybody think she used a surrogate? What, what was, why is that even an issue? That's just such a, it's, it's, a, it's a poke about her age, isn't it? And it's a poke about her vanity mm. that she wouldn't want to get the stretch marks. And it's a poke mm. at women, really. Um, no, I don't think she clearly didn't use a surrogate. She had a miscarriage. She was trying to get pregnant. I know as an old goat, because I was trying to get pregnant for ages over 40, you know, that it takes a bit longer and the, the things go wrong. But she definitely had a baby. Oh, wait, Wallace Simpson. Now, I'm quite into Wallace. Will Megan be having club sandwiches back in the USA while Harry's over here? Well, I think that Wallace don't say club sandwiches. <laughs> but club sandwiches back in the day were like the new kind of form of food. Um weren't they that's the truth whereas now club sandwiches back of the back of the supermarket stuff i think she probably have as avocado toast doesn't she as a millennial i don't know i can't imagine. do you think she does her own cooking megan i think she probably has help quite a lot of help they have quite a lot of help in their house did you read that cut article it's clear they have a lot of help keep your questions coming viewers my next question is harry did indicate that he was concerned about the media pressure on megan and he drew parallels with die do you what, what, do you concur with that yeah i mean he was deeply scarred but i think what the other thing we failed to realize is that when he died he hadn't even entered adolescence he was an 11 12 year old boy when his mum died whereas william stole a march on him he was nearly adult he was 15 he had a more mature relationship with his mother he had more to draw on in terms of the memories and he had a more balanced idea of the person his mother was and what she was up against, but also her flaws. I think I've got a 13 year old daughter. She knows I'm properly flawed, you know, can't hide it from her. It's just not possible. <laughs> um, so but but you can hide it more or less from a 10, 11 year old, especially one that spends most of his time by that stage in prep school. Lest we think Diana was the really hands on mother that we all portray her to be. And the kids, the kids were off at prep school quite early on. I mean, part that, again, that's about class. It's about royalty. So so Harry didn't really know his mother hugely well in a way that we do. Um, partly because she died very prematurely and partly because his parents were split. So half the time was spent with one parent, half the time the other. And half, most of his time was spent in school. 
So I think, um, therefore, it's very understandable he's curated um, a narrative about his mother and his mother's death that suits, in a way, his agenda. And his agenda growing up was this press, this kind of very prominent relationship he had with the press that were judging him, he was falling over, getting drunk, getting laid, doing whatever he was doing. Um, and that's really the last, the last thing you want, isn't it? The press picking away at you, the same press that was click, click, clicking at his mother. And that's indefutable. She went into the tunnel and traveling in behind her were the press pack. So it's not, it's not very difficult for Harry to put two and two together and make four and a half. And it's, it's, it's understandable too. Well, I mean, he did it also with the miscarriage. I mean, as I said already, that's more tuned into that kind of stuff in a way where he blamed Megan's miscarriage on um he blamed he blamed the miscarriage on the pressure from suing Associated Press, if you remember, in the documentary. Well, Harry, actually, you know, if you know anything about miscarriages and women over a certain age, like something like a third of pregnancies at that age end in miscarriage. It's actually about the age of your eggs and some of them just don't stick. It's called Mother Nature kicks out the dust, you know, and that's what happens. And that's I'm pretty medically that's a 99 percent chance that that was the reason why she miscarried. But for Harry and probably for Meghan, the stress she was under, because stress doesn't actually give you a miscarriage you know, alone. Stress isn't isn't the main cause of miscarriage. So, But you can understand why they deduced that and decided that was the narrative or the story they wanted to spin. I don't think they were deliberately lying, but the, but it was an emotional response to a situation, just like his response to his mother's death was an emotional response. Just like, I mean, there's other cases about them feeling the royal family are racist. It's probably somewhere in the middle where the royal family, you know, kind of say it's quite clumsy around some of, you know, some of the kind of um, race issues, quite presumptive about their sort of inherited position, their wealth, their white privilege. And that and that felt racist in the moment. And therefore, they took rather too long to deny that they said that it, they were racist in the Oprah interview. I think these things are understandable very unfortunate and it's all done rather publicly on a on an enormous stage but they're, they're flawed harry and megan but we're all flawed the problem is that they're criticizing a state institution that needed criticized but they've just done it in a slightly clumsy personal way that's made for sort of gripping viewing but not necessarily particularly helpful viewing for them or for or for the royal family so what did you think of the oprah interview well it wasn't really an interview was it it was a platform it wasn't an interrogation. It wasn't a, you know, it was hardly Jeremy Paxman. It wasn't impartial. It wasn't even pretending to be impartial. It was um, Oprah giving them a chance to air their grievances. And in a way, they were outside the institution. They didn't have, you know, all the trappings of royalty. They didn't have the sovereign grant. They needed some Hollywood friends and a bit of tinsel. And that's what she gave them. So, but but of course, therefore it was bias and therefore inaccuracies. I mean, some people who make their money, people like Tom Bauer make their money counting the number of inaccuracies in that interview and then complain that Harry and Meghan are making their money off the royal family. And I'm like, Tom Bauer, but you're making your money off the royal family. I mean, like I said, we're all one step away from, <laughs> from doing everything that we accuse Harry and Meghan of. In a, in a sense, that makes us more hypocritical. Yeah, don't you think? I agree with you entirely on that. What do you think about the challenges that Diana faced? Well, 
I mean, she I, she was like a lamb to the slaughter in many respects. Certainly, her marriage was, because I mean, you know, it's the looking looking to repeat Elizabeth and Philip's marriage. I go big on this in my book because I don't think they had a chance. I remember as a child, you know, watching Diana and Charles's wedding and with mum and dad and mum whispering behind me, "Poor queen." Both Diana's parents, you know, they're divorced and married again, and and and, and she so disapproves of divorce. Well, and this kind of idea that somehow Philip and Elizabeth had this perfect marriage and therefore Charles had to have this big perfect marriage. And that actually the idea that, you know, the kind of posh etiquette means they turn a blind eye to marital infidelity and indiscretions. But that didn't work anymore by the 1980s. You might have worked for Philip. We don't know. Truth will tell when his will comes out. But it didn't work for, for Diana and Charles. It's a really old fashioned kind of model that Charles had of marriage from his parents. I didn't even share a room, you know, way too bourgeois. And um, and I, 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 as I said, I think marriage and monarchy were a bigger deal than the monogamy, probably in that marriage. So you can't entirely blame Charles, I don't think, for believing he could get away with it, really, because that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to please monarchy, please his dad and his mum and do the big white wedding with the perfect Virgo and tacto aristocrat. At the same time, as still having deep feelings for Camilla and probably didn't intend to be unfaithful. He probably thought he could box those feelings up and, you know, um, make it work. But emotions, are, like we said earlier, emotions are messy, unless you're the queen. But remember, the queen married the man she fancied. She fancied Philip. It helps. Getting married really young is a goal. Fancy that bloke. Just staying married, stay on the line. Whereas Charles, he lived a bit, you know, probably fallen for the, the wrong woman. He should have married Camilla. We know that now. They couldn't because of ideas of etiquette and monarchy and soiled goods and all sorts of reasons. And also because Camilla then got married. And the, and the, and the victim in the, in the equation was Diana. In, in a way, she also gained from it until the, that appalling accident. Who knows where Diana would be now? Like Philip, she was given an enormous platform. She'd have just been another pointless Sloan Ranger, Diana. And then she married Charles and became a global brand. A bit like Megan, but actually more pointless. She didn't even have a job. She was just a nursery nurse. She wasn't a trained nursery nurse. Even. She just sort of, you know, was doing a bit of babysitting, really. Whereas Megan had a career, which is one of the reasons why she was able to turn her back on the royal family, because she knew she'd lived a bit. She was much older. She knew there was another world out there that she could inhabit with this extra oomph given to her by the royal family. Yeah. Never sure where yeah. I'm meant to look when I do these Zooms. Look into my camera. Look at you lovingly. Look at myself adoring you. <laughs> you got to do it all at once. Um, what do you think about the conspiracies surrounding Diana's death? I think they're bunkum. But I don't think that we can pretend that, you know, if you have a lot of paparazzi driving behind you, that's that's a challenge for a driver. And we know the driver was tanked up, wasn't he, on alcohol. The Diana died in a tunnel with a driver who's driving too fast. That's as far as my conspiracy theory goes. But it wasn't a good look for the paparazzi click clicking away when she's dying. And, you know, you don't, that, that's not good behavior. Our press have a lot to answer for. And I think it's understandable that Harry, you know, the, the taking on the paps is his world mission. And good luck with that, by the way, Harry, because I think he'll, it'll run out of steam. Those, I mean, at the moment he did the preliminary hearing, we've got another one to come after the coronation, which is incidentally one of the reasons why he's at the coronation, because he's got taken on the mirror group. I think a couple of days after that, he's appearing in the docks. No, well, not in the docks, because he's the one giving evidence. Unprecedented, incidentally, for a royal. So um, he could hardly turn up for that and then not turn up for, for his dad's coronation. 
maybe you'll get a free flight, you know. Angela you wants know. to know your thoughts on Diana wasn't a saint. No, of course she wasn't. Is anyone a saint? No. The Queen was until we get going, and you know, apparently, but she wasn't a saint, the Queen. None of us are saints. But the Queen, like William, had this really convenient role. She had a really clear-cut role, really set role, where she didn't have to emote too much, didn't have to say too much. Therefore, we couldn't judge her too much. Nobody likes a woman who says too much. It's just see the trolling I get. So, um, and Diana had a less clearly defined role, a very unhappy marriage, wasn't hugely educated. She had an incredible uh, appeal. Cameras loved her, the press loved her. Um, but we know in this country, you build up your poppies and then you pull them down again. And the, the press ripped into her a lot. It wasn't like she became Saint Diana after she died. But while she was alive, we were highly critical of her. Interestingly, I was reading a biography of the Queen written in 1996. It was pretty heavily critical of Diana. Of course, I think, gosh, if that book had been written a year later, the tone would have been very different. We've got 10 minutes left with Tessa. Final 10 minutes. Get your questions Need in now. This is your juice. last opportunity. It's quite, You've, it's quite a long time. Where, do the, <laughs> where, where are the cheers? Where are the comments? Can I see the comments? Oh, you can't even see them. They're like zipping down the side of the screen here. On, on, on your, I can't um, see them. Do you have like a menu at the top and it, and it says comments? That you can oh, yeah, I found them. I found them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they'll they'll Check drive you it. mad I've then. Trying them. to read them and answer the question and look at the camera at the same time. It is a balancing act. I can't do that. But but just, just let's go back to the coronation. My beast of the coronation are, first of all, that they've named the page boys, eight page boys. All of them are white, posh, rich and English. I don't think there's even a Scot among the page boys. So I'm like, well, how is that diverse? How is that speaking to a new modern generation? It's just like privilege begets privilege. I, I just find it extraordinary that, that King Charles runs the Prince's Trust and couldn't get somebody, maybe some guy who'd been really impressive or helped him run it from slightly more diverse or interesting backgrounds to help carry his great big ermine robe. And then Camilla's grandchildren. Yeah, just like I was at university with Tom Parker Bowles, her son. I always remember I was in a pub and he was in the same pub and my friend going, she went, that's Tom Parkerballs. And it was just at the time of Tampon Gate. And she went, you wouldn't want to be him, would you? And we were like, no. It was a tough gig for Tom, you know, in uni with Tampon Gate going on, I'm telling you that. But now he's, you know, he's a posh food critic, da-di-da. And his kiddies go to private schools and know they're going to be carrying the... I'm just like, really, Camilla's second-hand grandchildren? I do feel a bit sore on that. And that's where Archie is at loss. Four-year-old Archie would have been kind of a cute, cute addition. Let's not let's not pretend he wouldn't have been on the balcony. This is a loss for brand Britain, and we are, I think, a fairly diverse country. Okay, we don't get everything right, but it would have been nice to have a, you know, to have uh, to the, the Windsor gene pool. I mean, it's pretty narrow at the best of times. There would have been something nice about having them there, but it's not to be. And it was fairly obvious it wasn't going to be. I think for the last two years, it's been quite predictable. You got a question from Ray J. Tess. Who's your favourite royal? Not Anne. Everyone says Anne. I think Anne looks scary. I've met Charles. He's quite a softy. I don't mind Charles. I think he's quite a softy, but he's a bit under the hood, I think, of Camilla, don't you? There would be no room for me in that relationship. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you why I love Charles, because one of my big, big passions is Romania, and Charles absolutely adores Romania. He, has a lot, he always takes on quite unpopular hobbies, Charles, and Romanians, we know, get a bit of a drubbing in the British press. But until he got, until he, until the pandemic, he went there, after the revolution, he went there every single year without Camilla. 
Um, and he has 10 properties there and he even speaks little words of Romanian. And I kind of like him for that. I like him for having these kind of weirdly unpopular hobbies. I mean, if you think he was the sort of green nut who spoke to pot plants for years and years. And then um, and then we all in there, we all discovered all oh, global warming, global warming. And um, I think that we, we've kind of forgiven him. He was kind of almost avant garde. So bizarrely, I think I'm going to end up coming really establishment and saying, I think the king probably I think Kate for me is a bit terrorist. She's a bit of a gym bunny. She's one of those friends that would be quite hard to relax with because she's in the gym. I know this because I know friends who know her and she's like every morning in the gym. You can tell. I mean, she looks amazing. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's quite unrelaxing to have as a friend. Sorry, darling, got to go to bed. I'm in the gym tomorrow. <laughs> James wants to know if you think Harry is the son of Charles. Yes, because she didn't meet redheaded lover. Help me out. She didn't meet him until after Harry was conceived. And actually, if you look at Harry, he's got those very close together Windsor eyes. Don't say I said that. Well, I've just said it, but whatever. Um, but as we're going to, and, and also the very strong gene is the um, alarming balding. But we know that Harry isn't going to get that now because he's in Hollywood. So we'll never see the end result of that. But if you look at them in the right photographs, Harry is absolutely the product of his father, James Hewitt. James Hewitt. But Diana hadn't consumed her love with James until after Harry certainly was conceived, I think, if not born the dates if you look up the dates when is the coronation it's on the 6th of may selena on the 6th of may or are you going to be helping babysit megan's children that day do we think <laughs> megan's going to watch it on telly that's the big question then the bald patch what was red dawn saying about the bald patch i love these comments now i can see them <laughs> wish i'd known earlier diana did her duty she would never have risked doing anything dodgy in the early days what dodgy stuff did she do in the later days <laughs> Have sex with itinerant men. She had a slightly peculiar taste in men. Thoughts on the Queen's cousin. I think they're quite. Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, that was made a big deal of in Netflix. I think they're quite far removed. Most of us have got cousins that we don't really see or know much about in big families. Are the Prince William rumours of him cheating true? Like Prince Philip, I think you're probably going to have to wait for Prince William's will. But you'll never see Prince William's will because by an act of Parliament, the monarch's will remains private. Not the case with Philip, because he's just a member of the royal family. Actually, though, he had to have a court hearing that sealed it off. And that was contested by the Guardian and the Guardian lost the case. But still, we're going to have to wait. I think it's 89 years now. I know for the sequel of Elizabeth and Philip. <laughs> um, but I think with their marriage, it's really interesting. Was they gave us two clues. I did a TikTok about this. It went viral. Two clues they gave us to their marriage where the Queen in her civil wedding anniversary said, good marriage, a good Christian marriage, one needs tolerance and understanding. And then 25 years later, after the death of Diana in 1997 for their golden wedding jubilee, Philip stands up in Banqueting Hall and he goes, well, for a good marriage, the main ingredient is tolerance. And then he adds to that a caveat in front of a very glum looking queen. He adds, I can tell you the queen has tolerance and abundance. Now you tell me what in that context tolerance means. We know that Philip didn't smoke and he wasn't really a drinker. So what, ladies? He did like fast cars. Maybe it was his hobbies he was tolerating. Or was it his love of beautiful women? Funnily enough, I knew, I wrote a book, Bletchley, the Bletchley girls, working with all the, not all of them, but some of the significant women who worked at Bletchley Park. And one of them, Pamela Rose, who died last year at 101, was a friend of Philip's girlfriend before Elizabeth, Osla Benning, and she was properly sexy. 
And uh, Pamela always says, and by this stage, the Queen already had the hots for Philip because she met him in 39 and she was cutting pictures of Philip out uh, in her scrapbook when he was at war. But Philip, of course, five years older, was, you know, doing what you do as a lad in the Navy. And he would come back on leave and he would go out with Ostler. And everyone at Bletchley Park knew that Ostler had a Greek prince who was her boyfriend. The problem with that Greek prince was he didn't have any money. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're ter- you know, we were terrified of Philip. We gave him a really hard time. We were xenophobic. We found him way too beautiful and way too poor and too foreign, a bit like the Meghan combination. Too beautiful, not with a heft of wealth, anything like the royal family have, and foreign. And we give them a hard time. And Philip put up with it because he was to the manor born. He was royally wanted to throw in. And Meghan in the 21st century was like, no. She wasn't even in line, don't forget, to become consort. She was always just going to be an also-ran. I just wouldn't want to be an also-ran if I was Meghan backing up Kate and William. And also, Kate and William are a certain type of person reared in the English public school system, which makes for a, a sort of certain type of individual, which is very different from a Hollywood product. I mean. I mean, that's why, and I think one of the best lines in Spa was um, that William Kettle saying an American actress, like he was saying a a convicted felon. You know, because I can think that that is, you know, it's quite intimidating for the royal family. They've got a bit new and sharp elbowed. Ambition, it's such a dirty word, ambition around. Inherited wealth doesn't need to be ambitious. I'm really ambitious. You're ambitious too, Sean. Can't believe I've talked to you for an hour. Never we've got two minutes, time. viewers. We've got two minutes. Do you think left we've? Do you think we've killed your viewers <laughs> off? Do you think we? Do you think? We, do you think I've no, it's, 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 it's risen and risen and risen. We've got two minutes left <laughs> before we put the silver lid on this interview. No one's put the word for the silver lid in the chat. Did we yet. get the what word the, for that? What is the word? Um, <laughs> Tessa Roy's a Joanna Lumley. I've had that before. Do you think? Can I give Diana you my Joanna pre- Lumley anecdote? Yes, come um, on. Do I think she was pregnant? No, I don't think she was pregnant when she died. Um, the, uh, I used to work with these really old veterans, these old women at Bletchley Park, and one of them rang up, rang up, and, and I rang one of them up, and she said, "How are you on the telephone? Because right now on the television, I don't think I am actually, Phyllis." And she said, "You are." And I, I switched on the telly, and it was Joanna Lumley, who, by the way, is over eighty. I said, "Actually, Phyllis, that's Joanna Lumley, and she's over eighty." And you think that I, I am? That's me. So weirdly, it sounds like it's a compliment, but it's not a huge compliment being to- being mistaken for an eighty-year-old woman. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Um, there was one there. What is it? Do you mean a chafing dish? I've erected an audience. That sounds so suspicious. <laughs> Paul and Cheshire was with us at the beginning, and he's still with us. Silver mm. lid. Now I'm going to look up silver blooming lid. For goodness sake, you've got Kinsey Schofield on next, who's a friend of mine. I'm going on her podcast next week. She's much more pro traditional royal family than me. I mean, I'm not anti them. I am a monarchist. But I do want them to keep up with the times. They need they need to change a bit. They need to work work through the stuff with Harry and Meghan. It can't all be game Camilla because she's her, her appeal's fairly narrow. And they are also head of 14 realms, not just Britain, also head of the Commonwealth. Big problems for them coming up are going to be Scotland, poll, polling very badly in Scotland, poll, they poll very badly in Wales too. It's a very English thing, uh, royal popularity for the royal family. And this coronation is heavily embedded in England with all the little English page boys. And I'm wondering how they're gonna push out that appeal to make it a bit less. England. Hope that Tessa, doesn't you. Tessa, tell the viewers about your book and the American edition that doesn't have the photo, the sexy okay. photo in it. Of, of... The, thank you. <laughs> Joanna Lumley here. Joe's art. Joanna Lumley's also written a book about the Queen. This one's out in America now. Elizabeth and Philip, 
this one oh what's the drop my phone on the floor is in paperback <laughs> in two weeks with a new poll update on the harry and Meghan spill and the lack of hugging and the queen being a bit frosty and where next for royalty thanks sean i like your bald head by the way it's suited sure. Can people follow you on Twitter and, and Facebook, etc.? They can follow me. Just don't troll me. It's really boring. If you don't like me, don't follow me. Don't just say nasty things under the line. If you do, I'm going to do a Jeremy Vine and call you out. <laughs> oh, can I get a screen grab? Wait, I want a screen grab. Have we got time? One second, Absolutely. two seconds. God, it's hard work. All this teching and fiddling and pretending you're busy and popular. I'm exhausted and I'm not even Harry or Meghan. Oh, no, I want this one. I want this book. Is that is that a Bloody Mary or is it just tomato juice? <laughs> this is a healthy smoothie. Now I'm going to go down and pretend I'm a hands-on mother and give my child a hug so she doesn't grow up like Prince Charles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Love ya. Lovely being with you. Love, love, love to ask for having me on. Cheers, Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow. What a force of nature. And um, we are an eclectic channel. We're now going from <laughs> we're now going from <laughs> the royal family to UFOs and aliens. Oh, poor Chris, having to come in and follow that. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Good luck. See you soon. See you. Soon. Thank you. <sighs> hey, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Happy to be here. Thanks. Oh, it's our pleasure entirely. Um, maybe you could just explain to our uh, viewers and, and listeners how you would describe your work. How would you describe your background? My background? Okay, yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas, actually, and I went to the Air Force Academy. I wanted a different life. You know, I saw the suburbanites kind of around me in Houston. Uh, I wanted a different life, more exciting life, so I went to the Air Force Academy, and I grew up playing a lot of video games, actually, uh, and so I I graduated from the Air Force Academy with a material science degree and did well in pilot training, I think due to a lot in part to playing video games, also being on sports teams, all that stuff, uh, but did well. So I was an F-16 pilot basically for 18 years. So I lived all around the world with my family. You know, I have a, a wife and three kids now. And at 20 years, uh, we were in Spain, uh, retired. Uh, so retired after you can retire after 20 years in the in the U.S. military. That's the huge carrot, right? And then you get a pension directly uh, from that time. Uh, retired and then moved to Portugal. Um, had to do something uh, with my life. So I I was talking to my kids one day. What do they want to be when they grow up? And it, it, my daughter, she said, uh, I want to be an astronaut. You know, I was like, wow, that, that's pretty good. You know, Or a YouTuber. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? Oh, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, having said that. I mean, yeah. but I mean, what really jumped out at me there, and I think you give give hope to millions of men of a certain age there when you sort of implied there were some transferable skills <laughs> uh, between <laughs> video games and flying aircraft. Maybe maybe you can talk a little bit more about that link. Is it I mean, is this hand-eye coordination, concentration, you know, goals? How does this work? Yeah, well, actually, I think... Um... I think all of those things you mentioned, actually, you know, there's a lot of demand for whatever reason. Now you see all the addiction, you know, my kids are addicted to video games, but I play them with them, actually. Um, there's demand there and drive. Right. And what it sh what it taught me growing up, one one key thing I think people kind of don't don't, uh, I guess, give give uh, weight to is that you die and you just try it again mm. <laughs> and you die and then you try it again, you know, and you die and you try it again, you die, you try it again, you die, you try it again. Uh, you die and you try it again. So 
and then you die, you try it again. The point is you <laughs> just never give up, you know? And, um, and you, I think that's what actually sustained me through fighter piloting, you know, as well as the hand coordination. So yeah, it, actually the, the hand, the, the hand skills really do, uh, help. Um, but they only get you so far, you know, at some point, uh, the hand skills, I was, I was actually quite good with hands, right? I had really good hands in pilot training. I won all the awards, you know, coming right out of pilot training, you know, distinguished graduate, top graduate, whatever. But then I was cocky and not as, you know, hard, hardworking as the other pilots. Right. And they just passed me, you know, cause it's, it's just dedication over years and years. These guys are just totally dedicated. Um, and, you know, so they just maintained it, you know, so yeah, they're able to pass so dedication and then yeah using those hand-eye coordination skills 3d environments you know i mean you're fighting it's a, you know it's it's a perfect you know i've literally fought with airplanes and video games for years you know or cars or whatever guns you know whatever it is and then now do it for real you, you know it's a transferable wow. skill like have you ever done any of this gaming in a, in a sort of virtual reality environment at all i've got a massive virtual reality uh aficionado myself that's amazing. No, I haven't. My kids, we, we literally just had a discussion last week. They convinced me I need to get a VR, you know, just set up or whatever. I do a DCS, Digital Combat Simulator, and I used it for a lot of my recreations. I, I don't play it actually for fun. You know, I guess I wasn't a huge aviation enthusiast, you know, um, but I use it for my video recreations, try and recreate these engagements, you know, because these fighter pilots saw these, these UFOs. So um, I use that and that is amazing. The flying is amazing. VTOL, if you've heard of VTOL, V-T-O-L, I, I take I have done that flying, V-T-O-L. It's an amazing game. It's literally a breakthrough, blew my mind. Excellent. It'd be interesting to get a pilot's perspective on virtual reality training in, a, in a, an aircraft just to see if it is transferable. I'm almost, because I, I play a game that allows you to sort of fly very light aircrafts. And I'm, I'm wondering now if I could get a real one off the ground just from what I've learned in VR. Without a doubt yeah okay it's getting it back down again that might be an issue yeah it, i mean you practice in the simulator um yeah i mean I, a huge part of my career i you know i say fighter pilot and i kind of skimmed over there but the, each assignment really is is a three-year assignment in a different country and so I, I lived all around the world and a lot of that was simulators actually <laughs> i was running a simulator contract which was uh it was 16 f-16 simulators you know million dollar contract etc in uh, phoenix basically overseeing that. And then just like what you said there, my last assignment was in uh, Spain. And Spain is, we had 30 people, essentially 30 pilots or aircrew actually would come through and do this course altogether. It's called Tactical Leadership Program. It's the funnest program ever. The UK does send people there, but you guys stop sending uh, fighters, which I think is a huge mistake. You know, it's a huge mistake. Anyway, UK I'll, does I'll have uh, a word. I'll have a word with the boss. It's called Tactical Leadership Program. It's, it, it is unbelievable training. In, in all of my years in the Air Force, uh, I went to that program, Tactical Leadership Program, and it was just so amazing. It was located in Belgium at that time, and now it's in Spain. It's in Albacete, Spain, where I was, where I was stationed last. And that was amazing. And I was actually uh, the commander there, or uh, I wasn't the commander. I was chief uh, flying officer, essentially. And we instituted 30 simulators basically using um, not VR, but ready for VR, 30 of them. And what that does now is a normal simulator that I worked on before has 11 domes around it. Each camera system, each camera costs $50,000, right? To point at these domes, each, uh, each screen. 
because you need that high fidelity, right? You're training it to, mm. you know, to, with missiles, long range systems. So you, you need, you need HD 4k essentially. Well, if with VR, like you kind of mentioned, right, I can replace this $1.5 million dome with a $5,000 piece of equipment, you know, imagine. So it's going to just blow apart the industry. Yeah. Simulator training. For sure. Uh, I think I think one of the the phrases I heard in terms of virtual reality training is that mistakes are free, which is is an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Um, maybe you could just explain GeForce to us then. Many of us who haven't, well, I would I suspect the overwhelming majority of us haven't experienced any significant amount of GeForce. What does that mean exactly, and what's that like to experience, and to what extent can you experience it before it gets too dangerous? Yeah, G-Force, so gravity, really the big G, we call it. God's G, we'll talk about it. Because uh, when <laughs> you're like fighting, that. you know, in a vertical fight, if you imagine a plane going down, right? If I'm fighting against God's G, my turn circle's really big, you know? So if you're fighting vertically, this is really big, but at the top, it's small, right? Because if you get up to the top, you go slow, 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 and now I do a little curve around. So it's an egg, right? So uh, we call that God's G. You can you can kind of see it when we're fighting in a in a vertical fight. You know, I've been in a vertical fight with an F-18, and you know, I'm I see him up there like, oh, I can, you know, I'm pointing down. I'll go faster. I'll catch him. You know, I'm I'm fighting against God's G though, and that's where you feel it really, because um, right now we're at one G, right? The the human body can essentially withstand up to nine gravity, so nine times that. You know? And is that? Is, I've, I've heard this expressed before, and I don't know if it's accurate. Is that kind of um, equal nine times your own body weight? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's the acceleration. So it's it's uh, your your body weight is your mass. You know how many things of you there are. I guess that we don't know the things really exist. But anyway, that things of you times the acceleration. So yeah, here you weigh one one gravity times whatever it is, uh, stones or what, what you use. Uh, but if you're now pulling, it would be nine times that number. Yeah. Wow. And what yeah, does that so feel like? You can't like? move. It's, you can't, you have to basically, um, when you're fighting essentially, uh, and you do feel G's, you have felt it. If you're on a roller coaster, um, you, you do feel some G's. And I, you know, to be honest, that's the biggest part of flying that I miss. I found actually, um, I, Apart from the camaraderie, which is amazing, and uh, yeah, there are these intense, uh, you know, it's there's very uh, intense situations, you know, where you can you can perform or fail, you know, and and if you perform, it's awesome, and if you fail, it really sucks, you know. Um, so I, I do miss that, but what I've noticed actually, I miss the most. My body physically misses the G's, like it. So when I go to uh, amusement parks, I, I really enjoy it, you know, especially the light G's, because when we want to go fast in a in a fighter. You want to decrease that that gravity. You want to decrease your drag. So you push forward in a fighter, you know, so it'll push forward. And now you're going to have uh, zero gravity. So zero gravity is uh, actually the fastest that you can accelerate, you know, in a, in a fighter. So I, I miss that in roller coasters. And then at the end, or, or if you accelerate up really fast, that's probably three Gs, you know, three to four Gs. So you, you've you felt the Gs. That's what it feels like. It's just the, the amount, you know, above four or five Gs now. It, you can't move your arm, you know, it'll be stuck to wherever it is, you know. Um, How many Gs do. before you get that bizarre, horrible looking stretchy face thing going on? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, actually. <laughs> uh, probably four or five Gs is when you get it. 
Uh, what you do get is called jeezles. We call it jeezles. The it's measles. You know, measles combined with g g's. So we call it jeezles. And what what happens is is uh, your blood vessels will break all along your arm here. It'll just be like uh, red. It looks like a strawberry. You know. Um, and you know, along your, your, your butt essentially. And, uh, along all there, you get these, uh, red spots where the capillaries actually physically break, um, because the, the G's your, you know, your body is not used to that. Um, so in order to not pass out, because you really can't, you'll pass out about above four G's if you don't do a special breathing and, and body strain technique that's called any G straining maneuver. So you can actually practice it. I don't know if you guys want to try it. I'll show it to you. But I would love to see this breathing technique. You would. Okay. So yes, what you do well, is you, you, you know, you're sitting there straight. The first thing is you need to squeeze all of the muscles in your body from lower to up. And the most important muscles is your biggest muscles, your ass, right? Your butt. <laughs> so you have to squeeze it and you, you, you'll physically lift off the seat, right? That's how I know I'm doing it correctly. So that squeezes the blood out of your lower extremities. And then you have to uh, take a breath in and close your uh, glottis, the, the back of your mouth. And basically you just like, you're going to say the word hook, but you, you stop halfway through. So it looks like this. You strain. Hook. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So you can see I can, what it does is it pressurizes your, uh, your heart. And then it pressurizes the blood into your brain. And it, yeah, it looks weird, but. And uh, I hope that never comes in handy. But I'm, <laughs> glad, I'm glad that I have that in my back pocket now. But I suppose you also have to have the presence of mind to remember this when you're, you know, yeah. feeling like you're going to pass out any second. You have to do it before, actually. Uh, if you're feeling like you're passed out, it, it's too late in a fighter, you'll be uh, passed out. And it's very Game dangerous, over. actually. Yeah, people die every year. Fighters crash literally every year, uh, the pilot dies. Um, they have instituted new upgrades in my fighter, the F-16. They finally instituted an auto-correcting mechanism, and they they uh, made the the G suits, the things we wear around our legs, to they squeeze your uh, your legs and your butt. Actually, they made those longer and better. So, but still, yeah, people die all the time. Progress. Have you have you ever had to uh, bail from an aircraft? You ever had, ever had to eject? No, luckily I haven't. Um, my friends that have, I mean, it's, they have amazing stories, obviously unbelievable, but usually their backs are more jacked up. Actually, it, my back's totally jacked up. You know, most fighter pilots, it's either because of the G's, right? So I'm saying if you're fighting, if I'm fighting someone, usually if there's an offensive or defensive position, if, it, if you're in defense, which does happen, you know, to even the best pilots, then, uh, you know, you're looking back over your shoulder. Well, you have to look this way. You know, so a lot of times you're fighting like this and you want to win, you know, you really want to win. So you're not going to release the G just so you can move your neck and pull. So we all just, everyone just has broken necks and backs. Um, they really need to get a, really need to get a rear view mirror in there, don't they really? They have those in F-15s, but it, no, it's not good enough, you know. If someone's pointing <laughs> a gun at you, I don't think you want to be like, hmm, I wonder if they're pointing a gun at me. <laughs> Is that pointed right in my head or off to the left? You know, I think you want to be Yeah, guns in the rearview mirror may appear closer. Um, so, I mean, last thing I'll ask you on this, I suppose, and I apologize in advance because I imagine you get this all the time. Uh, is I mean, everyone's frame of reference for this sort of thing is obviously the movies, specifically Top Gun. And it just so happened last year, Top Gun, I believe it was last year, 
time's flying. Last year, Top Gun Maverick was the biggest grossing, one of the biggest grossing movies of all time, certainly of that particular year. And I'm always interested to get the perspective of actual pilots because I know Tom Cruise really leans on this idea of realism and, and doing as much as they can in camera without the help of big budget CGI effects. First of all, have you seen that film? And if so, uh, is it the kind of thing where you look and go, oh, they've done a good job there? Or do you kind of laugh along and shake your head and, and, and notice all the things that they get wrong? Yeah, I, I love the movie, actually. I made a, uh, I have on my YouTube channel, which is usually about UFOs, I made a video, a reaction video to that uh, movie, actually. No one watched it. Oh, great. It. Nobody cares. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to watch it when we finish talking, for sure. Yeah, it's, no, I talk all about it. I, I think, I thought it was a great video, actually. I was proud of it. Um, yeah, I thought it was, he was spot on with the realism, like um, the flying scenes, even the, it was obviously Hollywood advised or whatever, you know, it was over Hollywood, you know, the real, what they skipped out of all of it is just the intense studying, you know, um, I would say way more professionalism. You just wouldn't see the sort of recklessness that he does, but I, I don't know it either way. It's uh, the realism was there. It was maybe, you know, um, maybe given a little too much sparkle, et cetera. But yeah, mm. I thought the, the flying scenes are amazing. Um, that's good. Yeah. So a bit, bit more hyper realistic than realistic, I suppose, but that, that's the entertainment aspect, isn't it? I imagine. Um, yep. so let's, let's segue nicely into UFOs or UAPs as I think it's become necessary to refer to them. I've always been a massive UFO headed through my teens. I went through a huge X-Files phase and read everything I could on UFOs. And then as I became an adult, I became a very cynical skeptic <laughs> and uh, now I, I don't believe anything at all. Um, so, but I mean, what's been interesting these last few years or so certainly is some of the declassified footage we've seen from the Pentagon. We've had uh, eyewitness testimony from credible people, pilots, people in your in your uh, line of work. And it seems like there's been a resurgence in interest. So when did you start getting interested in this whole phenomenon? I was kind of the opposite from you. So I didn't believe anything um, until... 2021, really, two, two, two years ago. I, I'd already even started a, a YouTube channel. And so I was making videos every week. And then I watched the interview with David Fravor. He was Commander Fravor. He was the F-18 pilot who saw the Tic Tac. He engaged the Tic Tac. And he, he went on Lex Friedman and Joe Rogan and Fighter Pilot Podcast, all of those, and gave these really lengthy interviews. And, you know, he is your, you know, classic, you know, badass fighter pilot, you know, he's kind of nerdy, loves planes, you know, can literally tell you probably every detail in, you know, how many manuals, you know, I've, I didn't meet him, but I've known him, you know, I know that guy, I know him, I felt like I know him, just like you would know some other in close professional. Um, yeah, I don't know, it just seems like for hearing that, it seemed like I was there, you know, it was, I couldn't discount it. It was just so, yeah ridiculous yeah you know there's four witnesses that saw it four <laughs> fighter pilot witnesses you know i just i can't imagine they would lie to me you know yeah. that so. that's the interesting thing to me because i mean what i really like about fravor's testimony for me is, is the fact that he's not making any extraordinary claims he's not making any conclusions he's basically just explaining what he saw uh, and openly admitting he doesn't really know what it is. Nothing he says relies on any sort of conspiracy theory or the, you know, a suspension of disbelief in in, in sort of, the, you know, the nature. Uh, well, maybe a little bit physics certainly. So I, I'm 
I found that really compelling. However, uh, it still really only counts as anecdotal evidence. Now, you wouldn't want to accuse someone like that of being a liar, but it seems without any sort of corroborating evidence to back them people up. It, the sceptical cynic in me would say the overwhelming probability is they are mistaken. How, how would you argue against that position? Yeah, I mean, that's where I'd say, yeah, witness accounts, you know, although we take them in court, <laughs> for some reason we don't accept with the with UFOs and UAPs, right? So let's just, yeah, a normal witness account is usually just discarded. But in this case, and what's even more compelling is that there's there's so much other data. You know, I, basically I've interviewed uh, two people who literally saw the Tic Tacs with binoculars, you know, standing on, on the Princeton, basically, you know, from the bridge with binoculars, they get a call from the Kevin Day. He was the uh, running the, uh, the radar basically saying, you know, what's going on over here. And he looks over there and he's like, you know, watches this crazy, it was this light formation. He said there was like six lights went in a circle like this and then disappeared. And so, well Maybe we can just talk. Radar from the ship. Then there's radar from the E2 Hawkeye. Then there was the video as well that same day. You know, so there's a video with the flare video. So I, yeah. I guess the the short answer is there's tons of corroborating data, especially on that case. It, it's just amazing. Yeah, that's what makes this one especially exciting for me because there's something definitely there. There's something physically being observed by not only the human eye, but, uh, you know, very comprehensive, you know, sophisticated uh, equipment as well. Yeah. So, I mean, just just keeping on this idea of the, the Tic Tac sighting as it's been dubbed, many people would have heard of it, maybe some haven't, but what are some of the, you know, uh, descriptive features of this, this thing in the terms of uh, basically size, uh, what it, you know, what it appeared to be made of and, and how it moved. Uh, what, how did people describe these things? Yeah, the, it, it moved. Uh, I've heard different descriptions, um, but basically like, like a ping pong ball inside invisible walls um, or without inertia. Um, so what did, it, what did it look like is a Tic Tac, literally uh, the white candy Tic Tacs. You know, that's all they could think of. It's like a the Mork and Mindy kind of cylindrical white. <laughs> so that's yeah. what they said. Just a tic tac. There was nothing on it. There was no windows or markings. Did anyone or lines detect or anything. a? Did anyone detect a spearmint odor of any sort? <laughs> yeah, they didn't detect anything. There was no uh, sonic booms. That's the weird thing, you know. You ask how it moves. So uh, basically, w when they saw it, so David Fravor he gets vectored onto it. That guy I mentioned, Kevin Day. He was tracking them on the radar. He was saying they were coming from 80,000 feet, basically from space, that they were being tracked from this ballistic missile system before then. So their new radar, their new fancy radar on the Aegis uh, cruiser, it's the Princeton, Princeton uh, missile cruiser, um, it can look up to 80,000 feet. So he says he sees these contacts coming down to 28,000 feet, zero feet. He's out there finally. This is after a week or so. They bring the radar down. They bring it back up. They think it's issues with the radar. So he sends out David Fravor. David Fravor happens to be flying that day on a mission, and he goes out a training mission. And then as he as he gets there, he sees the Tic Tac. So it's just a white object over the water, moving around in this kind of just erratic manner. He says it's going like back and forth and 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 forward and back. And there's like a big patch. He said about the size of a seven forty seven. So about the size of an aircraft under the underwater, there's some disturbance in the water about that size. 
and the Tic Tac's basically moving back and forth over this disturbance uh, in the water. Um, and so, you know, David Fravor, like I, like, like I hope every good fighter pilot would, is like, I'm going to go check this thing out. So he descends down, right? And as he's descending down now, this thing stops and comes up to where he is, right? And it just comes up without inertia. I mean, we cannot do that in a fighter. You know, in a fighter, in order to go from surface up to 12,000 feet, you know, you can watch it air shows. They got to go, you know, start getting really fast, go fast, 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 get up all this, you know, kinetic energy and then convert it into potential energy, right? This thing just goes, you know, energy, <laughs> whatever, comes up and basically is across the circle. You know, we fight in circles uh, as fighters. And, and so he's across the circle and he says it's about the same size as an F-18. So an F-18 is, you know, I think it's almost 60 feet, but they say it's 40 feet, I guess, is, is the numbers they came up with. So he's just flying with this thing. Like, what is that thing? I want to go check it out. I hope like every good fighter pilot would. So he, he cuts across the circle. You know, if you're in a circle, you cut across. So he dips low to get a, get across. This is how you would also shoot someone, by the way. And, and so he, he goes like that. And as he's getting close to it, it just, he said they just disappeared uh, like a bullet. So over the horizon. Uh, and he said it just disappeared. And there was his wingman, Alex Dietrich. She was up high, just orbiting. When he went down to check it out, he said, hey, stay here. That normal, uh, normal cover, shooter cover type stuff. And, and so she's above. She says it moves around in this weird way. And then again, shot out. And then there was another witness um, who also saw it. By the way, they have backseaters. So they have people in the backseat. So it was two people in each aircraft, all corroborating. So <laughs> I don't know how you explain that, you know, and yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? And then I suppose that throws up the question of, I suppose, just off the top of my head, there may be more that I've not thought of right now, but three possibilities, some sort of natural phenomenon, um, foreign or maybe domestic technology that we're not aware of, aware of or extraterrestrials. Now, I mean, where, where's your gut lie here? What, what do you think this tells us, if anything? Yeah, I mean, it's this is a great case, you know, and I think really if we could get access to all the data that the government actually has, because, you know, the day, the next day, actually, and I've talked to, the, again, Kevin Day, Gary Voorhees, they were on the, they were on the ship, uh, and basically they said the next day, and the E-2 Hawkeye, actually, uh, people showed up in Air Force uniforms, and they took all of the data. So they took all of the radar data, and they took all of the top secret uh, new uh, Aegis cruiser data, right? This brand new ship. I, that that radar data is still top secret, you know, and it's, this is from 20-something 20, 20 years ago, and these people just walked on and walked off with it, you know? And that stuff, that top secret data, we don't just leave laying around, you know? So I think it's tra it should be tracked. Where did that go? Where is the top secret data? And I hope they're analyzing it, you know, to get some actual answers on this. Um well, it's worth pointing out at this point that this subject's always highly popular on the show. And uh, if anyone wants to get some questions in for Chris at, at this point, put them in the comments and I will put the best ones to him. Uh, we've had a couple already, actually. Uh, I'm hoping you know who this individual is. D. Stews asked, uh, well, said rather, Stephen Greer says that the Tic Tac is actually deep black budget technology for the USA. Who's Stephen Greer? And, and what do you think about his yeah. claim? Dr. Stephen Greer, he is a he is a, a crazy character. It seems like everyone in the UFO world <laughs> is just a character out of a book. I mean, honestly, Stephen Greer, he 
He worked with Bill Clinton. He's worked with all of these presidencies, actually, as some sort of advisor. And then I think in 2000, he launched the Disclosure Project. And he basically came out and had all these big press conferences. Um, yeah. And so recently, he, he started the CE5 movement. CE5 is a contact event five. And basically, it's a it's a protocol where at night you can go out, get in a meditative state. Uh, I don't know if you need to do it in a group. You can do it alone. And you can, I guess, contact these orbs or entities. Um, he also says that there's no, you cannot say anything about a threat. You know, if you go to their discord and you say, you know, oh, aliens could possibly be a threat because we don't know what they are. I think, you know, you'll be kicked off. I, I don't know if you'll be kicked off, but uh, they don't accept that it's a threat. And I don't know, you, going back to the question on what do I think it is, I think if you look at the propensity of data, right? I just talked to a guy, I was just playing paddle tennis uh, two days ago, PK, he's from uh, Fairford. He said in Fairford, this was in 1986, he was seven, year old, seven, year, seven years old, he's outside with his family, and there's eight people out there, and they're just hanging out. All of a sudden, this object just appears in the sky and the object, it looked like a box with like a triangular scaffolding and then some sort of ball, right, appeared. And so they're all, they look at each other like, you see that? And they're like, yeah. And then they, they're like, what is that? You know, and, and as soon as they like kind of started going towards it, it just totally just disappeared, um, vanished, right? Like a bullet, again, no sound. And again, no supersonic. Like you sh if you go faster than the speed of sound, you should. everyone should hear it like a bullet. Bullets are loud because they also pass speed of sound. Um, he said two days later, they called to the uh, the local airport. They knew someone that worked there and said, uh, reported it. Do you guys see anything? No, we didn't see anything. Two days later, um, four to five suits show up. So government, UK, show up at their door, separate the whole family into different rooms and interrogate them and, you know, ask him to draw the object again, ask him what happened. He remembers it because he was eight and he remembers crying because he's alone in there with this dude asking him to draw this, this uh, UFO, right? And yet it just couldn't possibly be true, right? I mean, yeah, it just seems ridiculous. And then I hear thousands of those. I mean, literally, maybe not thousands, I hear hundreds. Um, and I think it's just so more, much more ubiquitous than we think, because up until now, if you mention it, everyone thinks you're crazy. And, and there's many stories of that as well. So the stigma is very strong. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, another few questions, actually, for you. Um, so uh, Siago Guitarist, in reference back to the TikTok sighting, he said, didn't it, didn't it end up at their cat point and hover there for hours and hours? Um, I'd have to ask Kevin if, I don't remember if they saw it actually later on, but I, so what I remember is, uh, they send David Fraber to go intercept. They knock off their exercise. They had planned engagement. They go, they see the tic-tac, they come back and land. When they're coming back to land as they're, as they're driving back home, the radar operators say, Hey, it's at your cap point. So basically the cap point is where you're, you're combat air patrol point it's like your home point you know in the sky we say hey here's where we're going to go to hold and start our fight um you pick that for every fighting engagement etc and so it would have had to go very very fast like hypersonic to get from where they were back to their cap point right because they had gone off 60 miles so it went 60 miles i think in less than a few minutes or something it was 
uh, or anyway, it was, it was very fast. Um, so I think that's what he's referring to. And, and that's what I hear a lot is how did it know the cap, their cap point, you know, um, was it like mind reading or, you know, uh, or how did it know the cap point and did it read out of their systems? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Normally we pick cap points based on, uh, just kind of general coordinate locations. We could, they go there all the time. So it could have known through that way, but I don't remember it being there for hours. Okay. Um, James has asked, do you have any friends who have seen strange things at Groom Lake, which is uh, an Air Force base, I believe? Uh, I think, yeah, the Navy uses it a lot, actually, as well. Um, no, I, you know, I haven't heard any uh, fighter pilot UAP stories. You know, I didn't hear any. We, we never even thought of it, honestly, never thought of it. I, I went through training in, in Phoenix, and that's where one of the famous, uh, most famous sightings was, was Phoenix Lights. Uh, also Gulf Breeze. I trained at Gulf Breeze and one of the, one of the most famous, uh, sightings was there as well. So we never talked about it or even considered it. Um, and I haven't heard since. Okay. So I believe you also released a video on your channel, uh, yesterday, last night, uh, and you feel that you have footage of a, a UAP in HD. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what you have there and, and how you're able to verify that. Yeah. Well, verification, you know, how do you verify anything? Um, especially in today's age, how do you verify anything? And if you look even at Gimbal and Nimitz, like I just said, they have, there's video actually footage from both of those. You have known open pilot testimony, you know, multiple witnesses, there's radar data and, and still we don't know, you know, there's still debate. It's still, it could be just glare on the windshield, you know? Um, so in this case, it's just, it's one guy He's, uh, he's an autistic man in his 50s. He's from uh, Australia. So he lives down in Australia and he's had crazy experiences. You know, he's had three really strange UAP, UFO, whatever you want to call them, experiences in his life. And this was the third one and he got a video. Um, and this one, he's, he was out traveling with, uh, with his friend. She's asleep in the tent. It's, uh, it's late at night. He's drinking a cup of tea. And he says he sees a shooting star go across the horizon and it was red, he said, and he thought it was uh, like something breaking up, you know, like a satellite or something. But then he said it came back and it came back at a different speed than it, than it went. And it stopped right over his camp, he says, um, and lowered down, you know, basically. And that, that is the video. It's a one minute and six minute or one minute and a six second video. Um, and it, yeah, it's an amazing video. Um, that being said, immediately, it doesn't matter. Uh, everyone's like, it's a, it's a flashlight, you know? <laughs> uh, this guy duped you. How can you do it? Now, to verify it, uh, no. So I spent two months. That was the hardest thing. You, you said, how do you verify it? And that, that was literally the hardest thing. Um, is Basically, we, we find out who he is. Um, he wanted to maintain an, uh, uh, his identity secret, which I totally agree with. Um, I, I mean, you're going to just get hassled. But I also think we need the information. So somebody needs to verify it. So basically we got his ID, we did a background check. Um, we, we did a, you know, saw him in person, did a, an interview that I'm releasing on Friday. And then I asked, uh, Ross Coltart, he's a famous, um, Australian journalist, actually. He's one of the few mainstream journalists I I've even heard of that, uh, that do, does UAPs and he's done some amazing work in UFOs and UAPs. I had him on my show. And so I contacted him and he was amazing and, and did like a, a much better investigation than me or interviewed him did, again, went through. Uh, just talked, chatted with local police, et cetera. And 
yeah, so that's as far as you can go, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I guess, I don't know what it will take. It'll take a mass sighting and that's what it'll take. And, and that's why uh, I started a business, UAP Society. We're creating digital collectibles. I know that's huge right now, but digital collectibles is crypto to try and raise money to, to purchase and, and deploy these camera systems called Sky360. I think if you can get like multiple decentralization, you know, decentralized cameras videoing the same thing, you know, then um, we can get much more data, much more provable uh, data. And just to go back to your your question, I didn't, I think I didn't fully answer is if you look at all those sightings and you go back, all the stuff the government has, has uh, investigated. And if you consider that there are literally trillions of galaxies around, um, I think it's obvious that the aliens are here and they're just covertly i mean i, I don't know i don't know how else to say it <laughs> you know i mean if, if if they are here and we don't know then that's really really suspicious to me and that really drives me to find out you know yeah i think i'd need one to land on my lawn and then knock on the door and i think then i might start being a bit more open-minded <laughs> to the whole thing but yeah. it's really exciting and you just mentioned some sort of camera uh surveillance technique there i mean maybe you can tell me a little bit about these cameras and, and how on earth would yeah. you know where to point them yeah I'd, I'd love to talk about it it's called sky360.org it's basically it's a it's a grassroots nonprofit based out of uh, Austria now. It started in the U.S. actually. And the idea is you put out these uh, camera systems. You can build them at your home. So say you, you, you see a UFO or, and you want to prove it or you want to help or you're excited about the project or whatever, uh, you just order the parts. There's a part list on their website, right? You order the parts from Amazon. And they, that's the hardest part is uh, getting a global supply list, et cetera. And then they have the plans to build the camera system on GitHub as well as uh, the, the free download for that and the software to run it on GitHub. And so they're aiming to make these systems cost 1,000 euro, essentially, but with inflation, it's gone up, et cetera. Uh, but uh, yeah, so basically you have one camera that's always looking up, so it's a fisheye. So it sees the whole uh, the whole sky, right? But where the problem mount, is- where, where do you mount this? Uh, you put it in any sky area. So the Initially, we'll put it in UAP hotspots. I mean, so, I mean, does it go on a tripod? Does it? Do you have to fix? Yeah, it it's a tripod? it's an enclosure, maybe uh, you know one meter at the longest by you know a quarter of a meter or less than that. So basically, a box. You know, it just needs Wi-Fi and electricity, and you need somebody to go clean it, right? I mean, they do need <laughs> maintenance because the camera is going to get you know there'll be snow, there'll be rain. Um, you know, things will happen. So it, it'll require some sort of effort, maintenance, I think, by by people. Um, but there's so many people out there who have actually seen the, the aliens. So the aliens have reportedly, supposedly landed on their front lawn. And and a lot of them are not actually happy about it. It doesn't seem like it's a very good experience. Um, so, yeah, I'm serious. It goes through generations. So you have, uh, usually if, if you have, if you're an experiencer and you have these orbs and crazy sightings and stuff, it's probably going to go to one of your kids at least. So it travels through generations. Um, it's in all cultures, uh, native Indians, they talk about it. Um, you know, it, yeah. So anyway, I mean, they, just you to, build just this to play, system and you sorry deploy to it on your own. Just to play devil's advocate on that particular point about it traveling through generations. Is that not, potentially similar to a parent's religion 
passing down in the sense that it's the one taught in the house and it's the one that's around and it becomes a, a standard belief within, uh, you know, generations. Yes, uh, without a doubt. And, and it could also be just only um, in the mind, right? And, you know, maybe it, there is some crazy mass psychosis or something that's going on. Um, but I think even then, even then, the experiencers that I've talked to, people that are really kind of struggling with this, is uh, they want to find that out too, you know? <laughs> I, yeah. I think they can't believe that at this point. Um, the You know, but uh, I think either way, it's we should be investigating it, you know? Either way, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many people actually struggling with this and nobody can talk about it. You know, I interviewed Ted Rowe uh, the other day. He's been investigating for 20 years. He said he talked to a, a lady um, who literally ties herself to a bed every night uh, because she was abducted one night, you know, and her family thinks she's crazy, blah, blah, blah. And, the, you know, it'd be good to find out either way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, there's real trauma there, isn't there, by the sounds of it, regardless yeah. uh, of what happened. I mean, just, just to move back to these cameras, I mean, what makes these cameras so special in terms of their ability to observe uh, mm. that, say, a mobile phone doesn't have? Is, there some, is it a case of it's just always pointing at the sky or is there something unique to the technology of the camera that'd be especially helpful as well? Yeah, it's basically both of those things. Um, the biggest problem with cameras and why there, I really think there hasn't been a good video yet um, is the sensor. It's just so small. If you look at a camera, it, they're not really designed to get any videos or pictures past like five to 10 meters at the most, you know? So it'd be great if you had a telephoto is, is what we really need. So the idea is, and like you said, you have to have the camera there and ready and pointing and I think most people, you know, as much as we want to talk, unless you're really prepared, right? Unless you're really prepared. If you're just walking along and you have a UFO experience, I don't think your first thought is to pull out your camera. Like, I really don't. You know, if that, if, if it's a re assuming it's a reality, uh, you know, these experiences happen and people don't even think to pull out cameras. I've heard that multiple times, even with like 20 people out there. Um, so this way, kind of both. So you have bigger sensors and it's always searching up. So you have one sensor that's looking up for the whole sky. But what we really want is a zoom. We want to zoom in video. You know, we want to be able to read like, okay, that is that is an alien spaceship. You know, nobody can say that's not an alien spaceship. Um, so really, the what we found is we use AI, and and I was the, my big concern is what it was not going to work because you have to use AI processing real time to be able to point the other camera, right? So you have to identify because there's always something flying over. There's always something flying over. There's there's ice. There's bugs. There's wind. There's clouds. Um, the conditions are actually change very much. So for a, for a, uh, identification system, it's quite difficult and you really need good AI optical identification where it could be like, okay, yeah, that's a bird, that's a plane, uh, et cetera. And you need it real time, right? Because you have to point the big, the, the, the zoom in camera, you can't point the zoom in camera at everything, or you're going to wear out your system and, and it's not going to work anyway. Um, so we really needed the AI software and I was worried that wasn't going to work. Right. And then ChatGPT3 came out, and within a month, they solved uh, basically most of the AI coding. So it was like solved, not even, you didn't even need ChatGPT4, it, was, it already accelerated it. So I think we're so ready to deploy in June. I'm assuming this AI then is teaching the system what not to be interested in. So to recognize a plane and say, we don't want to look at that, to recognize a, an insect flying past the lens and say, we don't want to look at that. Is that essentially it? Uh, actually, no. Actually, the... Um, the, the chat GBT, what that helped uh, the coders with was actually just doing the, the literal coding. 
So they were able just to code the actual systems just by asking ChatGPT, you know, hey, how do you code this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it wrote it out. And he's like, if I wanted it to do this, what would you write in a code? And and that literally is how they they broke it. They just broke it by this that AI technology is going to break everything in the world essentially. So um, that was amazing. Um, and what you really and then what they needed and uh, Sky three hundred and sixty has done it on their Discord is basically you need really good training data. So that's the difficult part is you have to have humans actually go through and, and teach the AI, no, that that's a plane, that's a that's a bug, you know, and that's a plant. Uh, and that takes a lot of time and effort, which they've okay. done. Well, another question. Paul Morgan has asked, Paul Morgan rather, has asked, what do you think of the Travis Walton case? Now, apologies if you're not familiar with Travis Walton. I, I I am not enough to talk on it. I'm sorry. I just I've read about it, but I don't I don't recall. Um, yeah, I believe he was abducted. Yeah, I can't remember. Sorry. That's all right. Not a problem. Um, Linda's asked something. Linda Glass has asked something that we all think about, and this is completely linked to the idea of UFOs and extraterrestrial sightings in you know in mythology, film, lore, conspiracies, and that is Area 51. Uh, so to get your basic thoughts on Area 51 in regards to what's what's happening there, uh, she's asked, uh, why is it so protected, basically? Well, that's where they have the alien spaceships. You know, do, you, <laughs> do you believe that? I, I, yeah. I mean, I, again, I have to go back to the preponderance of evidence suggest it you know i really feel kind of betrayed um <laughs> lied to but i guess you have to it looks like that could be a, a possibility actually i mean we've heard that they're they actually in the u.s this past december they passed a new law that protects whistleblowers and so if there are programs that would prove extraterrestrial life then those whistleblowers will be protected According to That's this interesting. Law. And, yeah. and that would apply even in areas of national security, then, I suppose. That's often a, a loophole, isn't it? Well, I think they would have to tell Congress. That's the point. So what's been happening, what's happened in the U.S. is Congress has been effectively briefed or convinced that that they've been lied to. They've, I guess they've talked to enough people who have convinced, you know, key Congress members that there is a program, there has been a program, they do have craft, there is actual material. Um, yeah, I mean, if you imagine, say you know that ex extraterrestrials actually exist, then you can keep that secret, you know, just pretend, of course, they don't exist. And then you can look all around the whole world for ar interesting archaeological finds, right? Um, that's the whole conspiracy theory after uh, uh, Operation Paperclip was really the Nazis, really, they'd been all around the world looking for these crazy uh, UFO, uh, alien technologies, etc., you know, and then actually after World War II, and this is true, is uh, I think it was 1,000 German scientists went to work at the CIA. Uh, it was, or it was half of them went to the CIA. Anyway, it was built out of that program. Literally, this, I mean, it, you just read, you read it, and you're, it is true that science, that hundreds of scientists, however it is, went to work at the CIA. That is true. The CIA was stood up um, along with the whole U.S national secret black budget apparatus um it was like two months after roswell and then <laughs> now we've had black budgets since then um if you look at the kennedy assassination right kennedy they still won't release the files 
Um, but supposedly, again, maybe it's a hoax, but supposedly 10 days prior, he had sent a letter to the head of the CIA asking for um, information on any UFO files. Uh, you know, then he's assassinated. So it's, I don't know. There's just so much, uh, yeah, it seems like there's so much there. Well, there's a conspiracy theory I've just thought of this moment, which I want to run by you, get your opinion on in real time. And that is, what if all these UAP, UAP sightings, rather, is just really advanced Chinese spy technology of some sort? And that's also why they're sending these really rudimentary air balloons into American airspace to say, look, this is the extent of our technology in this area. Nothing else to see here. Maybe these Chinese balloons uh, are a double bluff to make a cover story for their far more advanced technology that they don't want us to know about. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, that argument, um, maybe I don't believe in it, but it's valid going back, you know, just a decade or maybe two decades, right? But like 2004, that's when the Nimitz happened. Like we were talking about David Fravor. Um, they definitely didn't have that technology. You know, there's no way back in 2004 they had that. At least, you know, I, uh, my job in 2007 was literally to study the Chinese and Russian uh, air forces, you know, using all of our secret uh, capabilities. Um, and they had nothing close to that, you know, like you couldn't go supersonic without uh, causing a shockwave, uh, et cetera. So, yeah. Okay, tell me a bit about the uh, the Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb. He's written multiple articles, apparently, uh, discounting the Kiev captures as artillery, artillery rather, or other military projectiles. So that's what you'll always have. You'll always have a skeptical response that try their best to sort of explain uh, anything that's classed as a UAP in a more grounded, earthly way. Have you have you looked at? Do you look at much of the rebuttals to a lot of the UAP sightings? Uh, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a huge part. We need to have, we need to have an open debate, right? You know, I think the, the, the past 80 years where if you mention UFO or anyone says a, you know, mentions a crazy story that happened to them, um, you know, the past where we just think they're crazy is not going to work, right? It's just, it's still going. It's still, it's been 80 years. It's still going on, you know, like <laughs> it, you, you can, we can continue to just put our heads in the sand. Um, but I think both sides need to consider, uh, the perspectives. Like I, I'm not, a, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure either. I have never seen actually any crazy, uh, UAP or anything, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just really curious and I guess I believe other, other humans, uh, you know, when they say it, but sorry to get to your question is, so Avi Loeb, um, he is, yeah, he's, he's a Harvard astrophysicist. He's one of the probably the only real mainstream scientist that I know of that has even argued for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, um, which is interesting, right? Because he pushes for the UFO. Uh, you know, he definitely is one of the only scientists pushing to actually investigate UFOs, but um, he, he considers any kind of objects like that, like the Tic Tac or something that can move impossible to our current physics as I, I think not possible, right? He's in that camp, I think, that uh, you can't travel faster than the speed of light, so they couldn't, they couldn't possibly be here. So I released a recent video after the Kiev uh, astronomers. There's basically astronomers in Kiev, Boris Zilyev and uh, Viktor Petrinov, and their normal day jobs is monitoring the sky for meteor uh, impacts. It's basically for science. 
And they've noticed these crazy other very fast moving objects he called cosmics and phantoms. And they, they've released two, uh, three papers now. And I think the third one will get peer reviewed finally. And so now that's, that's what we need is, is the debate. Yeah. That'll be interesting when we've got some, you know, credible peer reviewed science behind it, documenting these things, because there's clearly something there that needs explaining. I suppose it just, it just comes down to what conclusions people are making at this point. I'm in the, I'm in the, I want to believe section but really i'm desperate for some sort of tangible evidence i feel like i feel like it'd be on my bucket list uh to find evidence of extraterrestrial life before i before i shuffle off i'm not asking for anything dramatic i don't need little green men or independence day level um invasions well Just, what would uh, it take you know i guess that, that's the question because there's already many videos there's already um you know there's many many accounts personal accounts. I, I think the problem is with all the videos we've got, there's definitely something being filmed, but it's impossible to see what it is. There's something there, but nobody can tell you conclusively what it is. I think we need some sort of 4K footage uh, of, of a clear clear mechanical or, you know, you know, aircraft that's not from this earth, which is also corroborated by many eyewitness mm. testimonies. I just don't think the video footage we've got, albeit very interesting and, and, and worth definitely worth investigating he's just not the smoking gun yet i'm uh i'm very hard to please i think but in terms of in terms of alien life i agree I, with I, you i think i think yeah i think you're yeah. right you're spot on i think in terms of alien life i'd settle for like a fossilized microbe on a, on mars or something that that would do me uh quite happily but um do you are you confident then that in your lifetime we will we will crack uh the the, the biggest question in this regard as to whether we are being visited from from other worlds I think so. Yeah, I think we will. Yeah, I think with I mean, AI, I mean, I, I'm a YouTuber. I'm right at the cutting edge of AI and I have an NFT company, like I mentioned. Um, yeah, I think we're going to be able to answer any question we kind of want. Uh, and is there not a risk that um, this AI will turn turn us over and become our robot overlords? I mean, I, I have seen the 1984 documentary, The Terminator, <laughs> And uh, that I'm sure sure that's there's some kind of warning in there about our dalliance with with AI. I mean, from my interaction with ChatGPT four, I'd rather have them in con control of our country and nations <laughs> than uh, than what we have. I, I mean, that's what I say. the The biggest danger actually is uh, that AI is is only a tool that doesn't understand. It's not smart enough to understand what damage it's causing. Um, but it'll be a tool that humans will use for evil. I, I don't think the AI is the, is the pro it's humans using the AI for, for nefarious purposes, but no, I think AI will, will give us a, a energy abundance. I think we'll have energy abundance in the next 10 years. I think people won't have to work as soon as robots come online. So I don't know. It, it, people won't believe it now that I'm saying it, but I think in 10 years we won't need, you know, labor. That's very interesting. I mean, I suppose one of the, the worrying aspects of, of AI, then people have raised concerns about this. I mean, we live in a, a very information saturated age as it is. It's becoming very difficult for people to distinguish what's fake versus what's real in terms of reporting, you know, big news stories. We've had this term fake news thrown around, obviously, thanks to the uh, last US president. But we're now getting to a point with AI now where we can recreate someone's voice almost flawlessly. It'll get to the point where it will be flawless. It'll get to the point where you can recreate someone's physical characteristics and be photorealistic. How are we going to be able to separate the real from the not real in terms of our global politics and news? We'll use AI. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. In, uh, <laughs> Throw fire on the fire. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I trained. Uh, I was electronic attack specialist. I kind of mentioned I studied the Chinese and Russian. It was their electronic attack systems. And right. anytime a new technology would come out, right? And and actually, that's kind of interesting because they they saw these tic tacs and they saw these gimbal objects on the east coast because they just upgraded to actively scanned uh, uh, radars, which is basically electronically scanned. You know, you remember the old radars go like this. You know, right. you see them in there. That's mechanical. The new ones, it's just a flat plate, like on that Aegis cruiser. You know, the Princeton. You see those weird flat plates. It's just an electronic antenna now instead of a mechanical. Um, so that big breakthrough actually was kind of what gave them the breakthrough uh, to see these things, I guess, or maybe it caught the aliens by surprise, maybe. Um, but the point is, for every time that comes in, what happens right away? The jammers, the jammers get the same technology, right? So you get you get radars that have the new technology. They have like about that much time at an advantage, and then you have jammers uh, that are going to counteract. So it it's a tool, it's a technology. I think it'll be everywhere. So I think actually it'll be the reverse. Um, you know, if you're looking now, like you can find um, now they're catching these serial killers, right? Mm -hmm. From like 60 years ago. Did you hear about that in uh, in California? I've been like, keeping a low profile since those stories started breaking. Yeah, for but reasons I, I love it. Man. I'm, I'm so pumped because they they this dude, this serial killer, they caught right, and I don't know all the details. You you can look. Basically, he, it wasn't even through him, right? They basically got someone sent in DNA samples to 23andMe. Yes. And then they linked it. Not even he never he he was totally clean. Right? They linked it back to him through like someone in his distant family taking a DNA test. Right. That's, that's crazy. Now. Yeah. So think about that. That was so that's from whatever. Five years ago, looking back to the what the 60s. OK. And they could find that. So imagine what they can find now that the U.S. government, the NSA was literally recording everyone's telephone conversations. You know, I think you'll be able to ask AI, like, you know, who killed John F. Kennedy, you know, or uh, who murdered Jane or who stole the milk down the street? And I think it'll be like, here's your, here's your data. And it'll be like, this guy, you know, so that's I, crazy. All, those people yeah. out, all you people out there, the scammers, the people with uh, I think karma is going to come back. It's going to come back in the form of we're going to know what you did, actually. Their days are numbered for sure. Just to finish on a very quick anecdote about 23andMe, which I'll probably, my missus will probably tell me off for telling this, but I, I had one of those kits bought for me years ago and I find them fascinating and I found lots about my ancestry. And every now and then periodically, I'll get an email from them saying we have found some new DNA relatives and I'll be able to complete my family tree. And my partner, we've been together 20 years now and, and she decided she wanted one of these kits. So I bought one as, as, as a present and she you know, sent the sample in and she got an email back a few weeks late saying, we have processed your results. And the very uh, day she got that email, I got an email saying, we found new DNA relatives, <laughs> which which gave us a very moment of panic uh, before I had to log on and make sure everything was fine. But that that, that could have been a that could have been a moment of where maybe ignorance could have been bliss, if you know what I mean. Yep. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be interesting for sure, without a doubt. I can't, I can't believe I shared that on a live stream. All right, Chris. Well, maybe you can tell people where they can uh, find your YouTube channel and, and more more of your content. Excellent. Yeah, YouTube's just my name, Chris Lado. It's called The Lado Files, and I'm also on Twitter. You can see there at Chris Otis seventy eight. Otis was my call sign. I, I don't tell anyone. Oh, I got it. Ah, oh, that's ruined my next question. Then Sorry. we'll we'll just have to um, <laughs> just have to make something up, like Bob in Top Gun Maverick. 
Nobody knows yep. what that was about, do we? Okay, fair enough. Yep. And I will make sure to go and watch your Top Gun review, by the way, because it, uh, it sounds fascinating. But I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. This is such a, a fascinating topic. Uh, you're obviously clearly passionate about it. And I, I seriously hope we can have you back at some time uh, when you have the smoking gun to, to wave at me and, and uh, we make first contact. That would be amazing. Yeah, I would I would love to do that. Thanks, Stephen. No worries, Chris. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been a All pleasure. Right, thank you. Take care. Yeah, I love it. So, I mean, I, just to echo Sean's sentiment about the, the really important work you do, uh, and just to get a technical aspect out of the way there, we, we do have to ask that, um, you know, you, you, you announced that you, you're uh, willing to waive your anonymity to talk about such things because it pertains to you personally. Yeah. And you're comfortable course. with that? Ex excellent. Well, Emma, maybe you yeah, can just start I'm by... Yeah, happy to waive my anonymity. Wonderful. Um, maybe you could just start by explaining the work that you do and, and your background. How, how do you describe it? So um, I am a campaigner. I'm the founder of Project 9010, which is a charity which is focused on reducing child sexual abuse through education. Um, I do a lot of work uh, in this space, campaigning, running events, speaking up, speaking out. Uh, just to raise awareness, really, because as you say, you know, it is a it's a difficult subject. Many people don't want to talk about it. Um, and you know, I always I've always said if I can give someone a little bit of hope um, and a bit of confidence to know that they can use their voice, then they don't have to come on a show. They don't have to stand on a stage. They can simply just go and find a therapist to talk to, uh, or a friend, or someone that they trust to share um their deepest darkest because you know there are so many survivors of child sex abuse out there so many just don't want to talk they don't want to raise this conversation because there is a stigma attached um there's a lot of shame attached um but it's not their shame this is the abuser's shame this is the abuser's silence this has nothing to do with the victim um they have done nothing wrong You're huge back. apologies for that ghosts in, in the machine plotting against me here but we, we appear to be we appear to be back and i think I, I think i left you when you just made that excellent point about the, the stigma of people coming forward who, who are victims or survivors rather the better word uh, of this sort of exploitation and, and, and abuse and I, I feel i feel very fortunate that this isn't something that's affected me personally but whenever i uh, have had the opportunity to speak to people or read about it, this this idea of shame comes up a lot doesn't it people often blame themselves for the things that have happened to them what explains that sort of um, mentality but I think, you know, when when child sexual abuse, sexual abuse happens, it is when you are a child. So, you know, you haven't fully developed in your brain. You haven't really understood what's happening to you. Um, and and or, ordinarily with this conversation, it is someone that you know and love, sadly. And I know we'll talk about that as well. And that brings a whole bunch of complexities and confusion because um, you're then being you've got emotions attached. You have emotions attached to a conversation. You know, it's hard for anyone to understand. You probably love your abuser, right? Because it could be the family friend, it could be the family member, and there will be a love there. And they've violated that. They've stripped you of your innocence. And you don't actually get to really understand that until later on in your own life. And, you know, if you look at your brains developed in their late 20s, some some uh, some professionals say after 25, 
that's when it all comes crashing down for a lot of survivors, you know, in late 20s, when you start realising, Stephen, that you've been abused as a child. And then there is this stigma attached because it's from someone you like, potentially, mostly someone you love. How do you share that? I mean, that's a huge embarrassment. And I know myself, I went to a function in my 30s, late 30s, 40s, and I was sat, it was quite a big function. I was sat sort of next to one of uh, the senior metropolitan police officers, and I had been starting to dabble, you know, in this conversation publicly. And he said, I bet you thought you were the only person in the world who had gone through this trauma. And I said, Yeah, absolutely, I did. But now, obviously, I realize I'm one in just hundreds and thousands, millions of people who have been sexually abused as a child and when you realize that you don't feel so you don't feel so alone um you know you might not have had the normal that you thought you might have had through your young adult years um but you start understanding what your life could look like um for me i went into therapy um and that's how i started my healing I never thought I'd speak out. I didn't think I'd be here. I didn't think I'd write a book. Um, but I've done all of that. Um, and I'm very happy to be here to sort of give a voice to a very difficult conversation and to remind people it's not their silence. There is no shame. That's, yeah, that sort of thing is is wonderful to hear. And um, yeah, the, the work you're doing is inv- invaluable for sure. And I'm not entirely sure how much you speak about your own specific um experience with this uh, so forgive me if i you know if you're not comfortable with any questions i ask feel feel free to let me know last thing i want to do is make you feel uncomfortable of course uh, but i mean did this with in your particular uh, experience did this pertain to one individual several individuals first time um i was sexually assaulted i was nine years old um and it was on a family holiday in Greece and we'd got to know the Greek waiters I was uh they they were they were just great fun every night we'd go to the restaurant um every night they'd take all the children outside to see the animals and I'm an animal lover I love animals so for me that was great I could you know you could see parents you could hear the you know the the plate the Greek plates throwing the drink the cheering the dancing you could hear all of that it just it felt so safe. And towards the end of our holiday, I, I, I think it was towards the end of our holiday, I remember going out with lots of other children to see the donkeys, the sheep, the goats, the pigs, the horses. And as we went away, as we did every night into, it was like this circle, it just, it just felt like a spotlight of animals. And this one night, my friendly Greek waiter took me out of that spotlight and into the shadows and it and it wasn't a very it wasn't a long um it didn't it wasn't a long experience it was just enough for me to feel awkward and um after that I ran inside I didn't know what had happened to me and that was it came back to the UK and uh I guess that was the first time it had happened and probably I didn't think about it until when I was 12 years old, um, through through circumstances that I'll never understand, my biological father, who had 
I'd been seeing every other weekend because my parents had separated, told me he never wanted to see me again. And up until this point, he was someone who was, I loved. He was such a nice man. He was funny. He was happy. He was handsome. And uh, and that was it. He sort of disappeared from my life. Um, and I think it was then that the nine-year-old experience sort of hit me. Um, I started to feel dirty. I began to clean myself all the time. I felt uncomfortable. And my father leaving triggered a lot of emotions and I fell apart, really. Um, and I think, you know, as I fell apart, I became a real sitting duck for the family friend who took it upon himself to be my, maybe be my father, be my surrogate father, be the person that he thought I needed. And it was like, yay, I've got a new friend. Um, someone who understands me, someone who is kind, someone who seemed to love and like me. And that that kind of was sort of deep rooted in me, really. And then obviously now I realise he was grooming me and the, and the sexual abuse went on for the next four years. So it was around 16 when I realised what was happening was wrong. But again, like I say, he was someone I liked. And it, it's quite hard to sort of step away when you are being manipulated and coerced by someone who is very clever at making you feel that you need them in your life. And of course, they, they need, they, 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 you know, you don't need them. <laughs> you don't need someone like that in your life. They are using you for their own selfish needs. Um, and of course, you know, for my as I stepped away from that, and then then obviously my my life has sort of changed uh, dramatically. So from nine through to sort of sixteen, really, from the first experience to my father leaving to the abuse, um, was you know it was hard, right? Because I didn't have that sort of normal that everyone else had. I didn't have, I you know, my 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 teenage years were really, you know controlled um I was drinking I was taking drugs I was you know in a very difficult dark situation I, I failed at school um you know life life pretty pretty you know life sucked most people thought I'd be dead or in prison by the time I was 20 and uh I guess the good news is I'm not uh, I found my voice and here we are that is yeah that is fantastic news i have to, have to say and I'm, I'm very glad and, and and i appreciate you you sharing that with us I, I imagine it's not it's not easy to constantly relive these things by talking about it yet at the same time it's become so important that you do talk about it strangely so you i mean do you ever find that there's a trade-off here in the work you do with you constantly having to realize uh, relive some of the most traumatic experience of your life for the benefit of, of others Yes, I mean, you know, I've been speaking now publicly for five or six years. It's obviously I have a book out there. I've, I've been on some, you know, great stages and I've been at some great events and I've had a lot of support. I have had a lot of therapy. I went into therapy at 23. I'm 50 now. Um, I'm not in therapy now, but I use I do use progressive therapy if I ever feel that I need to. You know, I'm in a place now as an advocate. I'm a campaigner. I work in space, professional space. Uh, as a businesswoman, I'm also the founder of a charity. I need to be forward thinking. So, you know, I couldn't be 
doing what we're doing now, Steve, and I couldn't be doing that 10, 15 years ago. I wouldn't have been in the right headspace. Now I feel very equipped. I have a good team around me. I have a lot of support with all that I'm doing to make sure that, you know, I'm where I need to be doing what I need to be doing. And I feel hugely blessed by all those people and uh, confident and able to be here. I don't advise anybody to step forward and step up unless you have got that support network around you because I've seen so many people crippled by going public and being overexposed um, and so I've gone up gradually I guess I've been going up sort of steadily steadily and it's in my time right it has to be in your time you have to do all of these things when you feel ready I don't often share my story these days because my story's been out there so much I'm happy to because I realize it's an important part of what I'm doing who I am and why we're here having this conversation for sure uh, I mean did you ever receive any sort of criminal justice no and that that was one I think you've frozen again Steve and that was one thing I'll always regret and that's why I think I speak up more now. Um, I didn't take my abuser to, uh, I, didn't, I didn't take him, I didn't put any criminal charges towards him. And I, I guess I regret that. Um, but now I've got the opportunity to help other people do the same. But yeah, so uh, I guess if anyone is here feeling uncertain about that part of the conversation, taking your abuser putting your abuser um forward and going to the police and 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 putting a case together i understand the difficulties of that and i understand how complex that can be as well so um and i do have a lot of support and there is a lot of support out there who can help you so everyone can hear me that's good hi chris Stephen is coming back, I think. Um, and while he's coming back, I'll just carry on chatting, I guess. And I, you know, if we're talking about uh, to justice, I know how hard that is. And I know there's probably people on this conversation here who have done that. Um, but I didn't. But uh, boy, if anyone gets in my way now, I would definitely, without a shadow of a doubt take that forward I've got no problem now calling it out but as a young girl I was too scared to too scared so um I know uh Stephen had Stephen has dropped out did the police help or hinder in the beginning Emma I was really scared of the police I was really scared of the police but I was also terrified of my abuser and I think this is something, again, that is really common. People are too scared of their abuser because there is that bonding. Um, and that bonding causes so many difficulties for survivors. So, um, so, so people don't report. No, they don't report, Mark. Hi, Stephen. Sorry, I've just Emma carried Jane, on. <laughs> I apologise again. I think what's happened is the, the stream has decided you are far more interesting than I am this evening and has just decided to, <laughs> to keep throwing me out again. Um, yeah, I think we were just I think you were very kindly just explaining to me, unfortunately, that you, you didn't you didn't manage to seek any sort of legal redress for your for your abuse. No. 
I didn't, and and I do regret that. Um, and I don't think I don't encourage other people um, not to report. But I also understand the difficulties of reporting. However, someone uh, got naked. Um, uh, got naked in a pool. Actually, Fred's just said about flashing. Someone just got naked in a pool. Actually, while I was swimming there. And I have gone straight to the police. The police have dropped the case. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this isn't good enough. Um, we need to take this forward. So uh, I've seen a loophole in that conversation. And, I, and I'm, we'll maybe talk about that later. I have no problem now going forward because I now feel strong enough to be able to do so. I feel capable to be able to do so. Um, so someone is just saying here, if you do, oh, Chris, Chris Tuck, she's an activist. Uh, she says, if you do report, you are not always believed. And she's right. And that's the other stigma, right? You know, it's so hard to get across to the criminal justice system, to the authorities, for the political world, that child sexual abuse is real. It's happening and it's causing a lot of difficulties for survivors because things Cases are dropped. Cases are not um, cases are not considered uh, in the way that they should be considered. Young girls, young boys coming forward to say that they have been the victim of child sexual abuse and not being believed. Um, and I don't know how we change that. I think we have to go to the top. I think you know when you when you look at these conversations, you have to go to the top. You have to go to politicians. And until you can have a breakthrough. In the political world, these conversations continue to go around in circles. It's hugely frustrating, hugely frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, what, what's been interesting in, uh, in the work that you've been doing, especially, is is, is a lot of um, deconstructing of some of the popular narratives or the warnings or the way we think about protecting or safeguarding this idea of stranger danger is often thrown up, which I suppose is a, a mm. very valid thing to consider. But meaning your research and your knowledge it, it usually pertains to somebody you either know or related to, isn't it? Is that due to the case? Yeah, and I had a TED talk um, published a couple of years ago, and it was called It's Not Just the Strangers We Should Be Careful Of. Um, and that was based on the 90-10 statistic. 90% of children being abused are being abused by people they know and love. Yet we educate 10%, which is the stranger danger in schools. And that is a really big difficulty because there is so much research. It's stacked up. Research is so, so stacked up now on this conversation of the 90-10 statistic. Yet it's like we're stuck in the 20th century archaic ways of teaching risks, stranger danger. You know, I was, you know, I was you know born in 1972 that was our that was all that was our safeguarding be careful of the man in the white van sorry if there's any <laughs> men with white van vans watching but that was our fear and you know I ended up being fearful of um men in white vans for, for, for many years because of that and even now if I'm out on my own and a white van comes past me in a, in a lane I, it, it's not because I think they're going to do anything it's just that instance oh that's what I was taught. Um, and of course, you know, that's what we have to have to really sort of dig deep and change that this is not stranger danger. The stats are 
I, I have turned on that. We need to start talking about the reality of child sexual abuse. Yeah, for sure. And I suppose many of us who are, are outsiders here and, and, and probably without knowing it, maybe have someone in our orbit who's being groomed or maybe is being abused and it's just not something we're capable of recognizing or maybe it is and we're missing warning signs or red flags i mean is there any advice you can give to people to make us better at recognizing that the signs and the red flags in regards to helping other people yeah i think you know i'm often asked how can i recognize a child sexual abuser and the answer is you simply can't because it is quite often someone who knows and loves their victim and that's not, you know, the stereotypical man in the white van or, the, the, you know, the man in the bush. That is not the child sexual abuser. The child sexual abuser is someone you know and love. Now, if you're worried about someone who, uh, who might be um, going through uh, maybe being groomed and, and sexually abused, there's things that you can look out for. There are things like sudden changes in their behaviour. If a child that you love suddenly seems a bit different, then maybe there's a question. Maybe there's a bit of monitoring that should go on. Maybe the child is fearful of being alone with someone that they're usually happy to be alone with. Um, and I, that, that recently happened uh, with a family. Um, I know that the mother kept taking the son round to the grandmother's where the cousin was. And every week, the child got more and more distressed going there and she just put it down to the child not wanting to leave the mother. And it turns out now um, that the cousin was sexually abusing her son. Um, cousin's actually now in prison, but um, that was a really big red flag. And she feels awful about it. She said, because every time I dropped my son off, he'd be there crying his eyes out. And I'd be like, there, there, it's OK, off you go. Um, so, you know, you've got those kind of signs, unexplained, unexplained fears of, of being in a certain place, so, certain places that you maybe hadn't even considered might be a place that your child suddenly feels completely freaked out about, completely stressed out about. Those are places that you could actually look at now. Um, maybe they're fearful of being touched. They don't want you near them. They're cowering away. Maybe there's a change in their schoolwork. Maybe they don't want to go to school. Maybe they suddenly feel sick and ill and they don't want to go to school. They, they're not interested in the clubs and the sports activities that they would usually have been excited to go to. Maybe they substance abuse, delinquency, um, careless behaviours resulting in self-harm. The list goes on and on and on. And I think the most important thing to say is if there is any changes in your child, which whatever they are, just be aware of what they are and start looking a little bit deeper. And hopefully because of this conversation, you might share it with someone who's who, who, who also needs to hear it or someone's told you that they're child. Maybe, it, maybe it's not child sexual abuse. Maybe it's something else. But just don't be fearful of having that conversation. Yeah, that, that's certainly good advice. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what sort of data do we have in terms of how widespread uh, exploitation of minors is in, in the UK and I, I imagine it's a, a thing that's deeply underreported as it is but I mean how, how common is it would you say and do these statistics point to a, a huge cultural problem? Or an exploitation? 
yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was at an event, um, a big event a couple of years ago, and they were talking about like, exploitation. And I was genuinely shocked um, by the statistics that I had heard about some of the local areas in sort of Oxfordshire and Berkshire and London. I was horrified, you know. I, I, I can't remember what the statistic was at, the t- at that time, but it was a lot higher than I'd ever, ever imagined it would be. Um, but of course, you know, we now know in the UK and I now know through my work how um, serious child ex- sexual exploitation is. I've been working with people who were as young as two when their parents would hand them over um, for drug money um, and they'd pick up their kids at the end of the day. And, you know, that was horrific to hear. It was horrific to listen to. And, you know, and I think the reality of this conversation is it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter where you are in the UK. This is happening everywhere around us. And we just need to be mindful. I think, you know, obviously, recently in the news, we've heard all sorts of stories um, about various child sexual abusers high profile and my question always is why couldn't they be an abuser why do people doubt that uh, people that they know and love couldn't be a child sexual abuser Uh, obviously it's an uncomfortable conversation but it's a real true reality of where we are in the world we need to flip this conversation someone recently contacted me and said EJ I wish I'd uh, I'd listened to you sooner because you know my friend's kids father was abusing all of his children and that was shocking that was shocking um but it happens everywhere and we have to remember that it happens everywhere all across the world but if we're talking about the uk it is happening right now and uh, i suppose i mean it's a very sensitive issue and it it, it gets a lot of column inches as well but it, it was also indicative of sort of really high profile systemic failures and potential cover-ups this is this it's been so-called um, grooming gangs in the uk um and it seems like a, according to many reports a number of those things were either swept under the carpet not followed up or just completely ignored by the authorities because you know one of the victims were very vulnerable and the police saw them as less important for some reason in, in a lot of sort of working class areas of the uk and, and secondly uh many of the perpetrators were described as asian or non-white and i just wanted to get your your reading on that particular problem in the uk in terms of the way the authorities are dealing with it and maybe the way the press are dealing with it right now i think you know this is such a big conversation to be having and an important one um we do that the media absolutely exploit conversations um i get totally fed up by the media exploiting high profile child sexual abusers because it's not about them it's about the victim and all the time you've got epstein you've got maxwell you've obviously had all the savile cases going on and 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 the royal family have been wrapped up in it all the time you're reporting on that behind that is um is is a domino effect of survivors even the ones not involved directly involved in those cases because they are triggered by the fact the press and the focus remains on the perpetrator it's making them more famous and we've really got to change that so you know i do think the press have a great responsibility to help to change this 
because by 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 making it main news, yeah, I feel like it's continuing to exploit the conversation. Um, and of course, it, it makes money, right? I mean, it makes money to sell newspapers about these famous people, and and it really shouldn't. We should make it about the survivor, make it victim led, make it about the person who has been hurt, violated by this conversation. As for grooming gangs, uh, you know, white there are white grooming gangs, there are blurred uh, grooming gangs. We cannot, you know, we have to look at this as a national problem, regardless of who you are <laughs> and uh, you know, the demographics of this conversation. We need to look at it hugely and really um, investigate not just one type of person investigate all sorts of demographics on this conversation yeah okay well last thing i'll say on like whole high profile cases things i think obviously i agree with you it, it, the focus definitely should be on the survivors and i suppose this ties into that that mentality but i mean J jimmy savile who you referenced moments ago prolific abuser uh, of minors in the uk and managed to be a, a sort of you know, it was almost celebrity royalty in the UK for the longest period. And it seemed to me from what I could see about comments made or jokes made about him over the year is that this was a fairly open secret what he was doing within institutions and, and colleagues and the, the business in general. Yet nothing was made official in terms of what he'd done until after he had died. So I suppose how, how have we created a culture where it seems like plenty of people are aware of exactly what this individual is doing on, on such a large scale, but there's so much complicity and, and silence around it to the detriment of, of these people who, uh, who are survivors. I think, you know, um, again, with the Savile case, pretty much everyone knew that Jimmy Savile was an abuser, like you say. I actually know one of the first whistleblowers, I interviewed them years ago, um, but they were pretty much shut down and moved to another department because they spoke out about Jimmy Savile. Is this a whistleblower um, in the BBC? A whistleblower um, who was working at one of the hospitals. Okay, thank you. And um, they have spoken public. I won't say their name just because I'm not sure where they are at with this conversation now, but they have spoken publicly about it and the fact that they, they saw and... Um, heard things and they were uncomfortable that they got shut down and I think the trouble is there was no one can believe that this is where the conversation has been starting to change right is that it's someone you know and it's someone you love now everybody loved Jimmy Savile right I mean you know I who like I, I was a 1972 baby I wrote to Jimmy Savile I wanted a pony <laughs> oh wow um, I just I bet you're so uh, grateful he never returned that letter though surely yeah I know someone who was in the studio uh with Jimmy Savile and um, nothing had happened but it makes you cringe now that actually we all bought into it you know Rolf Harris you know he was my era we we brought into all of these high profile paedophiles and everybody around knew that there was something amiss but no one was prepared to do anything about it. And that's where the conversations have started to change is that, you know, it's breaking that, that barrier. You know, institutions across the world are too scared to 
get this conversation out there to make it a high priority and profile case because so many people are still scared of the conversation of child sexual abuse and we have to change that it's 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 important it's serious children are being violated children's lives are being ruined and we need to not have this fear about it we need to have the zero tolerance because the zero tolerance will continue to be um, our friend in protecting children. It's it's great that there are so many people out there speaking, wanting to share this conversation. But we don't have nearly half enough as we should because we don't have the great support of the media, the politicians, the royal family. They do great work supporting every charity under the sun. I don't see them doing much for child sexual abuse. And until you get some really high profile cases, names coming forward to really stamp out this conversation, we're just going to, like I say, we're going to keep going around in circles, but it won't stop me and it won't stop um, all the other people that I know who do want to speak out about child sexual abuse because, um, oh yeah, someone put there about Princess Diane, Diana spoke up about it. Um, it's it's just too taboo um, and institutions around the world, whether it's media or other, need to come together because, you know, I always say unless someone from the royal family or the political world has this conversation affecting their life, and, and obviously we don't wish this conversation to affect anybody's life, but until it does and it comes from a high profile case, we're, we're not going to have enough change. Um, for there to be enough support and protection for young people. I mean, just I mean, what we were talking about at the beginning of the the conversation, you were saying it's so it's almost impossible to recognise an abuser from a, if you're an outsider looking in, and the people that you you really need to speak up are the people being abused. Of course, people are minors, like you say, they're not fully developed. They, many of them don't even understand what's happening to them to be able to speak up, which is, which is a huge tragedy. And I was just wondering what kind of things, if anything, are, are they teaching at UK schools to better equip minors to, to maybe recognise and, 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 you know, blow the whistle th themselves if they are being targeted in this way? Um. I think, you know, recognising that you're being sexually abused takes some time because of the reality of being sexually abused. And, and, if, and if we go back to the beginning when we talked about the, the brain having developed late 20s, um, there needs, I feel that there needs to be more, uh, more media out there to help survivors. Currently, there isn't a great deal to help. There's not, you know... There's great big signs if you've got breast cancer everywhere. There's great big signs if you're worried about your mental health. There are huge signs. There are signs out there in the NSPCC, and there are some great signposting. You don't often see, are you being sexually abused? Are you a child? Um, do you know what it is? I mean, I didn't actually know what child sexual abuse meant as a child until I was much later into my childhood. So it's knowledge. It's awareness. It's educating young people to understand what is right and what is wrong. And we need to get that into schools. You know, they've got PHSE at the moment, which ticks a box, quite frankly. Um, it ticks a box in modern day, but it's very archaic and not truly reflective of where kids are. 
in the world. So it's about educating children, educating children so they might be able to think, actually, this this isn't right. Something is happening to me. Um, this isn't something that I can um, I can deal with alone. And and here are some, you know, some charities that can help. They here are some signposting of people I can talk to. And then, of course, it's having the confidence to pick up the phone and, and text or speak to someone because, you know, we know how difficult that is um, for young people to, to, to report because they, they're very isolated at that time. So maybe it's about, you know, doing better advertising, um, better awareness, better education so young people can really identify and not just young people, parents as well. Parents being able to talk to their children. Now, I know lots of survivors who are parents who will talk to their children, but that's because the survivors have knowledge and awareness. Those parents talk to parents who don't have knowledge and awareness. Not many people want to talk about it. <laughs> they'll gloss over because they'll be like, oh, God, that's just too dark. That's just too horrible. But actually, knowledge is king. Knowledge is king. If you can be fully aware of um, these, the, 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 the complexities of these conversations, then that's a great start in helping parents to protect their children and arming the children on conversations so children aren't embarrassed to speak up. Yeah, that, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? And I, it's just occurred to me as well, like you, you mentioned Obviously, there is still the stranger element people have to be concerned about, but it's predominantly someone in your family, you know, a friend of the family that may be participating in grooming. But now this this new generation really has the Internet to worry about, social media that's been thrown into the mix. And how big of a worry is that to you in, in the context of, of grooming and sexual ex exploitation? The, the idea that we have this, you know, it, all, all teenagers and, and younger now seem to be connected to this global Internet, you know, supercomputer where anyone can access them and they can access anything thing they want how much of a concern is that I, I think it's huge I think there needs to be much more control um, from the government on this conversation um, because as a mentor um, and I and I and I say mentor I, I, I do work with survivors and victims um, but I'm also occasionally brought in to work with young children I say young children maybe sort of like 13 14 year olds who have been sexually abused um, and I find the um, conversation usually starts with the, the young person saying I was given a phone at seven years old by eight years old I was being groomed or someone asked me to send a nude picture or someone sent me a nude picture that got out of hand um, but there was no control. And I think the, 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 the online world is, is it's so big, it's so scary. And again, it's about education. You know, what parent, and I'm sorry to, if I'm ever gonna offend anyone here, but what parent think it's okay to give a seven-year-old a mobile phone that most adults don't even know how to handle. They don't know how to cope with some of the fallout from social media. 
I see the trolling. I see the upset. I see adults around me falling like flies because someone's upset them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And then you're going to give an underdeveloped child a phone who is potentially going to have access to that wide world that adults can't cope with. And then you've got porn, online porn. You've got the online grooming world. The layers are huge. The layers are huge. And it goes on and on and on. And you've got a child with the most powerful thing in the world, which is their phone. And, and, and who's checking that? Who's monitoring that? Who's controlling that? I know a lot of parents who will probably say they are, um, they are doing a lot to monitor it. But are you going in, you know, under 16 year olds, keep an eye on what the messages are. I recently heard about a young group of kids, year seven. Uh, one of them thought it was pretty cool to set up a WhatsApp group, which, yeah, of course it is. But one of the parents went in a few days later just to check what was going on in that WhatsApp group. And the boys were saying, who's going to lose their virginity first? I mean, it's eye opening, right? Mm. But if you're not monitoring your kid's phone, how can you see what's going on? And then how can you be disappointed five years later if you find out your child has been sexually groomed for the last two years? Keep an eye. Be wise. Be savvy. Help your child use the phone. Help your child. Maybe don't put them on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat until the legal age, which I believe, um, unless someone can tell me otherwise, I think it is 14. I think, you know, it's young people shouldn't be on these uh, social platforms until they're 14. Well, I know so many kids on these platforms from 10, 11, 12. Um, and, and, and this needs to be controlled. And I think that could come from the top. I think it could come from the political, from the government, that there is some kind of control. Personally, um, and I was talking to someone, uh, Shikesh, on uh, Twitter. I don't know if he's watching now, um, but he will, I'm sure, watch the playback of this. He said something that I was like, oh, yeah, I love the idea. If, you know, when we, I don't know about, I don't know how old you are, Stephen, but when I was got my first phone, it was a brick. And it just, it, it texted and it rang. And um, that was all I needed, right? that's all kids need right give them an ipad do your computers have some parental controls on it but you know if it's about getting them to school and back just give them a brick so they can get there and back sorry i i went in i went a bit deep there but it kind of the online world is so big um and i really think that it's a it's a big conversation that really really needs a lot of thought and consideration and you know so 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 many mobile phone companies and social media platforms could do so much more to control what goes on i agree uh, i mean it's it's about it. i mean i'm i'm 38 i my first phone was a brick and i i managed to get through school and college it's about university when social media really came into the mix so by then I'd, I'd kind of survived school and college but i can't imagine the added social pressure that would have you know had if, if social media had been around i think it's especially difficult for young girls i've got some you know young nieces and i think they have a, a whole world that they have to contend with online something that i didn't have to deal with uh when i was when i was younger and i think there is ways you can sort of empower parents to put controls on you know teenage kids phones to limit screen time and what they can access and things like that so i think i think maybe that's a happy balance perhaps 
Yeah, and I I really think you can control things so much better. But it is, and I and I don't want to offend parents, but it is kind of lazy parenting if you haven't got controls on your child's phone. And I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry if I'm upsetting people here. It's genuinely how I feel. If you've got a child that is young is too is young and have has a mobile phone put some parental controls on it remind that child you are the adult and you can check up on their phone um so that you can keep an eye on it so that you're not um worried that there's a boy in your a, a whatsapp group asking your granddaughter or your niece or your daughter if they want to have sex keep an eye on that stuff because that young person will be I think and that's the other thing is when you receive that stuff as a child and I've been there because you know I have been groomed um I didn't I wasn't groomed through social media but it's a real added pressure of trying to be cool you know trying to have you've got the you've got your technology you've got everything around you you don't want to now start saying something online that someone can screenshot and share around the whole school which I have seen I I, I recently um, I've worked with a family whose young girl, and she was um, under 13, older than 10. Um, a, someone asked her to show her chest. Uh, and she did because she felt so pressured not to. That got screenshotted around. It, I mean, it went around all the school. Um, it became, and, it, and, it, and the person asking for the chest tip, it wasn't a friend. It was an older man. Now, just keep an eye on things because the pressure for a child is immense. I, I've also heard from people in, in law enforcement as well that there's some sort of taking these pictures and in a way is also, even if you're under the legal ages, is still classed as distributing child porn, even if it's your own images. I'm not sure if I've understood the law there, but that, I mean, it's a whole host of trouble for everyone involved, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it child sexual uh, imagery is is abuse. You know, it, it's it's not intended to be shared. It's child sexual abuse, and um, we've been talking about that. In fact, Chris Tuck here on on the chat, she's been uh, talking very openly about this as well. Child sexual uh, child sexual imagery is child sexual abuse. Yeah, it shouldn't be happening. Um, and it needs to be stopped. So I'm always fascinated with people such as yourself, or survivors, if, if you're okay with that word, who who have had a horrible experience and a bad start, yet through the character and, and obviously getting help through therapy and various other means, you've gone on to be you know successful uh, and have a life. And I, I don't, I don't I'd never forgive someone like that of just wanting to completely move on from the whole thing and never mention it again and just live their life. I mean, I, I think that that's possibly what I, I might do. So I'm always very fascinated when people actually decide they're going to speak up and, and be an activist about it so i'm just trying to understand what, what's the mentality there that from somebody the difference between somebody who just wants to get on with their life and move on and forget about it which is you know perfectly understandable nothing wrong with that versus someone like yourself who who wants to speak out about it why, why make that decision um so uh professionally i'm i have been in the lifestyle businesses i went into business when i was sort of like early 20s when i went into therapy most people thought like i say that i'd be dead or in prison um quite early on 
and it had this grave effect on me that I thought I was useless <laughs> and I wouldn't amount to anything. And so I I left all the trad jobs that, you know, I was expected to do. And I was like, right, I'm going to go out on my own. I set up my lifestyle business, went into therapy, built my world up. And for the next sort of, I guess, you know, 10, 20 years, I was really happy in that space because I built up my business. I was presenting um, the well-being show on that's TV. And, you know, I felt like I'd gone through, I turned myself inside out. I'd managed to achieve. Um, I'd been successful and I don't mean monetary. I think there's so much more to success when you've been a survivor of child sexual abuse. It's about surviving. Um, and so I turned my life around and then one day I was interviewing someone on a show and I sat there and I thought, do you know what? I feel a fraud. Uh, imposter syndrome really hit me hard. And I thought, you know what? Everyone sees that, you know, I'm out here and I've built up my business. I've been, you know, uh, I've done OK. Yet I didn't feel like I'd achieved anything, really. And it was that moment that I thought, right, OK, it's time to speak up because I have worked hard to be the woman that I am today. And I know what I've gone through to be the woman I've gone through, uh, been through to be here today. And so I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to dabble in sharing my story. And I didn't really know what to do um, about it. And then I thought, actually, I'm going to write a book. And, you know, it was a bit of a process. And then I went on, uh, went and spoke at a football stadium in front of like 400. I don't I, I, I was nearly sick on the stage. I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? Wow. And but I said to them, they were. They, I was on the front cover of their magazine, and I said, "Look, there's more to me than 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 what meets the eye." Um, and if I can give someone some hope by what you know through what I've gone through, then that was simply enough for me. If I could just give one person a little bit of hope, um, and that's why I did it. That's why I spoke out. And of course, after I spoke out the first time, people were coming up to me saying, gosh, that was really helpful to me because, you know, I realize I'm not alone. And I'd done a lot of research and I'd done a lot of uh, reading and healing and therapy. And, you know, I'm like 20 years into my therapy at this point. And um, it suddenly felt, I felt so liberated and I thought it may well car crash my careers. And it may well be the end of everything that I've built up, but I didn't care anymore. I just thought, you know what? I just don't, I don't care. Like, I, I, there'll always be a job, right? But well, of course. Talking of things, you've been, sorry, go as, ahead. As I, as I, as, 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 yeah, so as I sort of like, you know, uh, realized that it opened up my world in other ways, my business was okay, that carried on. Um, and I've moved into uh, a role of campaigning advocacy and now obviously my charity. Yeah. Tell me about your charity. Exactly. What, what's the, uh, the main focuses of that and, and how can people find out more about it? So the charity is called Project 9010. Um, it's a, I've been working on it for a couple of years with a team um, and we got the full registration um, just a few weeks ago. So we're now a fully um, registered and official charity. Um, the focus is that we're working, so the, it's called Project 9010, 90% children being abused are being abused by someone they know. We educate on 10, as I said earlier. And it's about educating children. And it's, it's a, so we've built um, a programme 
um, which we are still developing with the education with uh, with some educational um, heads. Um, but it's set up for the public benefit to educate, raise awareness, protect children, um, encourage young people to understand the importance of healthy relationships, how to trust, how to understand, how to recognise when to question, when to speak out and who to speak to. Um, we are a vehicle for influential attitude and action change through education and awareness campaigns in the area of child sexual abuse. So whilst we're just over the line with registration, I'd say we're probably another year away from going into schools. Um, we don't work directly with the kids. We work with the safeguarding teams and the parents um, and we share their training with them. They take it forward to the young people and we support them as well through the work. So. Yeah, it's it's been it's been. I, I cried when I got the email from the charity commissions to tell me my charity was now registered, because it felt like it had gone full circle and I hadn't, you know, ended my life in a ditch in a in a prison <laughs> cell or, you know, I'd done something about it and I I I was really proud to have done have achieved this so. So yes, so uh, if anyone wants to support us, all my work, all my all my work is on my website, which I think someone's been sharing. Ray J's been sharing all the way through. There it is, yeah. And congratulations on that as well. I, I believe there's a lot of uh, hoop Thank jumping you. involved. Don't in, make in, me cry again. <laughs> yeah, I believe there's a lot of hoop jumping involved in, in getting a charity registered. So that's that's a that's a wonderful achievement. Yes. I suppose um, in 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 the few minutes we've got left you've you've, been, you've spoke very positively about therapy during our, our conversation and it, it's not something that's generally considered or spoken about in UK culture it's massive in American culture it seems like everybody has a therapist in America but not necessarily in the UK but why, why is therapy so valuable and, and do you recommend it in general for people 100 percent 100 percent there's a lot of sh it's, it's a bit like the conversation of child sexual abuse there's a lot of stigma around therapy and therapists and there really shouldn't be i couldn't i wouldn't be here without one i thought 12 weeks of therapy that would be it no nah. i mean i've done an a to z of therapy and i probably had over 12 15 therapists over my years um and i've i've found that to be hugely um beneficial because I've been able to laterally think about everything um, that I've been doing with my healing and it wasn't so I could be here today doing this with you Stephen it was just so I could purely survive and feel better about myself um, and, and obviously now realize I have a voice so gosh I can't I can't recommend it enough and I think take that it take the stigma and the shame away it's like it, it's simply the best thing i don't eat bread but if i did it would be the best thing since sliced bread <laughs> i mean so i mean we've all got this idea of i mean I, i've never uh been to therapy it's not something i'm against it's just like it's just not something i've thought of and I, i'm assuming that's just a cultural uh difference perhaps but a lot of people have got this idea yeah. in their head of uh, you know the the professional with a clipboard and the patient lay on a couch just you know exploring their feelings and, and free association and things like that what what is the general gist of therapy I, um, it, it's all about helping you to heal the way that you need to heal, to, 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 to release the, the, the difficulties, whether you're stuck, whether you've got trauma that needs to be um, heard and, and, and supported. Um, so it's about supporting you. I see it as a framework, a real structure 
uh, foundation to um, you as a person. When I first, I was thrown into psychiatric care when I was 13 and um, labelled a juvenile delinquent. Um, and that was your stereotypical, it was me and a, and, a, and a doctor in a room with a microphone. I mean, it was so sterile. Mm. And it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But it's not like that. It really isn't like that. There's some really wonderful, beautiful therapists out there who are, like I say, they are your foundations. They are your structure that can really help you. You know, I started with 12 weeks of talking therapy, which was great because it helped me lift the lid a little bit. Then I went on to various other therapies, acupuncture, sound therapy, gongs, you know, <laughs> EDMR, a light therapy, um, sound. Th I mean, I did so many different therapies um, that I probably could pass now as a therapist. But it was all of those different kinds of therapy that helped me become the the, the person I needed to become it, because I just didn't want to sit in that space of fear. I was such a scared child. I was bedwetting. I was nervous. I was paranoid. I mean, I had to sleep with the light on well into my 30s, early 40s. And even now, I, I you know, I, I like that's the that's the very last thing that goes when I'm just about to fall asleep. So there is a huge uh, there is a huge effect to child sexual abuse that needs to be undone. And uh, I know you're talking about therapy, but if we're talking about therapy and child sexual abuse, I really don't think survivors and victims should do this alone. Um, there needs to be more support, um, more, more money invested for those that can't um, afford therapy. We need to be better, you know, prepared for these conversations to help the, the hundreds and thousands. I mean, I... I try to do my best to help the people that I can through my own work, but it's not enough. There needs to be so much more investment into this conversation. Yeah, that's a great point, Emma Jane. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you despite the subject matter. It's been lovely to speak to you and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the campaigning you're doing. It, it's really important. And, and once again, congratulations thank on you. the charity. Uh, and, and thank you very much for joining us, joining us this evening. It's been eye-opening. Hey, Bruce, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Sean. How are you today? Yeah, fantastic. Whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in lovely Staten Island, one of the five boroughs of New York City. Oh, wow. And what got you into this line of work? Ah, well, I uh, decided to write a book. And then my publisher said, hey, you've got a good voice. Will you help me with a podcast? And then I also started creating artwork for him. And then I heard him refer to me as his, and then he started sending me checks, which was nice to, to work for him. Then he called me his marketing director and uh, it just tumbles forward from there. And I do a couple other things, you know. You do have a fantastic voice. I concur with that. And what about getting into these false flag events then? What led you to them? In 2004, I saw someone on stage at a business weekend teach us that 9-11 was an inside job i had never conceived and I, I tracked him down the next day and tagged along to lunch and interrogated him and when i got back home that was out of town i got back home i started looking into it and very quickly found 
uh, the new Pearl Harbor by David Ray Griffin. And by then there were the documentaries, I think loose change. And then zeitgeist, maybe zeitgeist was first, which has a, about 20 minutes of loose change and never turned back. Sean just kept reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. And 10 years later, I decided to craft the kind of book that I finally got published a couple of years ago. And I really was passionate about it. I, I had already been going every week. This is just a fun story. Every Wednesday night, I went to an open mic night at a divey little bar that basically just had singer-songwriters come on stage for 15 minutes or three songs, but they also let spoken word or poets. Well, I'm very comfortable on stage. I used to be an actor, and I wanted to stay comfortable. So I was already going up there every, every night talking about energy and consciousness, which was the original idea for a book I wanted to write. And I created a nice little manuscript and put it in a drawer. But when I found all these false flag kind of truths for years, every Wednesday, I would just yell at this room, you know, this is what's really going on, blah, blah, blah. And I got a lot of positive feedback from that. I really, really did. Um, so, and then, after my book came out a couple of years ago, I, I pursued getting interviewed on a number of podcasts and they kind of, then I was getting invited. Some, you know, I got out, my name kind of got out there and I was interviewed a number of times on a great platform called TNT radio.live, which is a talk news platform, free speech platform. And then I asked them, what does it take to have your own show? For, so for the last three months, I have my own radio show every Saturday afternoon, New York time from four to seven at tntradio.live. And I, you know, I interview folks because I love to learn. I love to read. I love to learn. I love to talk. It's a nice combo. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a yearning amongst the people for this knowledge as you, you know, felt that out yourself, but the mainstream ma media constantly suppress it especially if you get a certain amount of followers they definitely shut you down so in particular then i mean you know certain things that woke me up my worldview prior to these wake-up moments was completely different everything just changed did you have a go for a, a period of wondering whoa everything i believe is now false yes uh when a friend really explained to me how the Federal Reserve and the, and the American income taxes, I asked a few questions. You mean this, that, and the other thing? He said, yes. And this, that, and the other thing? He said, yes. And I stood up basically to entertain the room. We were in a room full of people. I said, you mean there's really a dragon to slay? There's really a dragon to slay? And that has fueled me since around 2005, 2006. It's intolerable when i watch the mainstream news and for the last three years with covid can we speak freely about covid and shots yeah, and we, things yeah we can on, on this Good. platform and on, on rumble yep excellent well what a what a dystopian nightmare we live in that so many humans trust authority roll up their sleeves and do anything you know just do anything and that's a whole that's a whole other conversation Sean, to just contemplate that's humanity you know we just we just want to go with the flow if 
if the government says, okay, now it's time to stop shopping at, at our Jewish friends. Okay, we'll do that. Nazi Germany. Oh, now it's time to round them up because they'll get us sick and it's for our health. Like, okay. And the modern version, oh, we just have to take these injections from these companies that have paid billions in dollars of fines for being proven criminal distributors of knowingly harmful Oh, my goodness. Do we have our work cut out for us? Yeah, and unknown, unknown cause is now a leading cause of death in, in major cities in Canada because <laughs> they can't acknowledge, they can't acknowledge yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Died, died suddenly is the new problem. <laughs> it's, it's, you have to laugh otherwise you go crazy. All right, so yeah. um, let's go over to 9-11 first then shall we mm. what was your heads up on that because i was trading the stock market and i was watching the option trading and that was my heads up in advance or right after it yeah it was headline news about the anomalies yeah. in at yeah. the time saying that you know the put options on airlines and other companies linked to the building the trading, the average daily volume of trading just went up to, spiked up to multiples of what it normally was. And on the headline news back then, they said, it's got to be terrorist insider trading. We're going to track these guys down and, and bring them to justice. And then it completely disappeared out of the news. I was yeah. like, what happened to that? And then years later, I read about it and yeah, saw where it was, it was tracked to a brokerage linked to the CIA, ex-CIA running it. And yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, it's a, that was the biggest, biggest thing till COVID. It's still worth uh, recommending folks get a good book about 9-11. Get my little book just to read the 9-11 chapter. If you have any doubts uh, about it, buildings don't fall that quickly. Even if they've, they burn for 48 hours, they don't fall like that. You know, um, I love pointing out the mainstream story, the official story is that the floor is pancaked on the inner core columns like albums on a spindle and stacked. The floor is pancaked and stacked. Okay. And when you look at the debris field that night and for the next six months, there's no, there's no rubble pile of stacked floors. 110 stories would be a rubble pile of stacked floors about 40 or 50 stories high. They're just, it's just not there. And in fact, there were holes to the basement. There were survivors in the basements who could look up and see uh, blue sky and smoke. So then the last thing to that is, well, what are you saying, Bruce? It's like, well, watch the videos a few times over and over with the sound off and ask yourself, what are you seeing? They zoom in often. They do the work for you. You can see that nothing is collapsing and pushing down on the subsequent floors. It's sequential explosions in sequence that's creating the, the illusion of descent. The buildings are being demolished in midair. So that wasn't done by a handful of guys on some planes with some box cutters. That was That's proof right there of an inside job. Hold the phone. Red alert. Building 7. Collapsed at 520 that afternoon, the Solomon Brothers building, World Trade Center, Building 7. You know, 20 minutes after a BBC newsreader 
I think her name was Jane Stanley, said, well, we have a report that the Solomon Brothers building, this is at 5 p.m. she's reading this, while right over her shoulder in the background, there's the building. Somebody jumped the script. They gave her the script too soon. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Terror, terror, terror. We've got to go invade and kill these innocent people in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, um, you know, it's just, it's mind-boggling that, I, you know, I, I wrote this book and I talk about 9-11 for 20 years or more, more or less in order to equip people so they wouldn't get fooled again by some next big lie that comes along. And then we get to live to see this thing called COVID-19. And it just, it just dwarfs in magnitude, 9-11. It dwarfs in magnitude what Nazi Germany did to Europe. It fulfills Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984. We are living in this incredibly bad James Bond movie. And, and for folks who don't see it, there's no arguing. There's no talking anybody into it. They, if they don't see it, that means they, they're on a 24-hour morphine drip of the mainstream media. They're just completely brainwashed. And we just plant seeds and, and try. Well, when I was younger and more feisty, I'd blow a gasket and have, you know, hour-long debates with somebody. And I don't do that anymore. Mercifully, I got this older and more tired or wiser, <laughs> depending how you look at it. <laughs> what was the motive for 9-11 well there there are myriad motives in my opinion sean the 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 immediate one is to just continue the enormous cash cow that the unnecessary american military is got to create an enemy that sort of justifies the perpetuation of the existence and the investment in this unnecessary military and to bully and extend our influence uh, in that part of the world and to further uh, to traumatize a new generation because every 10 or 15 years there are massive events like this that psychologically destroy young people so they I believe, uh, listen to and obey and cling to authority, big daddy government to protect me from the ooh, scary threat that you're, you know, creating and, you know, shoving in my face. Um, and then there's monetary ones. I think you just alluded to. There was, there were a lot of transactions. If I recall, let me see if I can describe this accurately. There were securities coming due that had, that were related to Something about the financial horrors we inflicted on Russia after the Soviet Union fell that, that used funds backed by gold that were from something like the Black Eagle Trust, gold from World War II that the Japanese or the Germans, it's a, it's a really nice thing. And they had to wipe out um, those brokerage firms and... And then also there was a naval investigation in that wing of the Pentagon that was pursuing this, the, these, this fraudulent, this, this, this horrible financial thing that was, you know, set up by uh, bad, bad actors in the intelligence and the, and the Wall Street communities. So that accounting wing had to get whacked at the Pentagon. And it, it's just culminates. But then there's esoteric stuff, you know. 
September 11th is a meaningful date. Uh, according to the people who really research the, the psychopaths at the top, you know, it's the date that the Pentagon was founded in 1941 and it recurs a couple of times. Oh my gosh, there's a great book called the end is only no, the most dangerous book in the world by SK Bain. And he tracks the numerology of September 11th, the, the, the airline numbers 11 and 175 and 10 and, and these other factors, these other numerical values of the buildings and things like that, they they chart very nicely with Aleister Crowley's most published and prominent uh, writings about his Luciferian beliefs and uh, teachings of the power of magic with a K, which is, I, I believe, in, connotes the casting of spells and the manipulating of minds in order to give energy to one's hidden occult, you know, subterranean secret kind of goals and missions and plans and purposes. And I'm obviously, I'm the kind of guy who kind of obsesses on the things that I find interesting and read, you know, 15, 20 books about something, um, you know, and then it gets all swirled in a confusion of, I think that's what I know. I think that's what's in my book. I think that's, you know, but, but it's, uh, it's well laid out and sourced in my in my book about the basics of 9/11, and then there's a great history of uh, the corruption in America. You know the, the forces that do control our military, that do control our media, and and our our, our finances. And um, it's a great primer in my book. It's only 175 pages, and it'll really get someone up to speed about all the things that I just you know alluded to, so that. People can look at the sources. There's 45 pages of sources in it, and then they can just say, oh, this is where Bruce draws his conclusions, or that's where he gets his claim from. And it would get someone up to speed who's just, you know, not hasn't seen or heard these things before, and yet knows, like, wow, no, no sane person would do what our presidents and prime ministers and newsreaders do and say every day. It's just not what, if life was your goal and health and happiness and equality and fairness and human rights was your goal, we wouldn't be seeing any of the stuff we're seeing. So why are we seeing it? Well, my book kind of sheds a lot of light on um, why. So Bruce, what do you think of the Patriot Act? That I consider the, the coup de grace that, that really took the head off of America. I consider the assassination of President John F. Kennedy when America received a fatal wound and it took 30 years for the, for the body to fall and die and the coup de grace chopping the head off, 9-11 is the excuse, was the USA Patriot Act, concurrent with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and meaning because of those things, Americans don't have our constitutional rights any longer. Therefore, because we don't live under the Constitution anymore, Sean, we're not America. We pretend we are. It's all bad theater, but it really signifies the, the tombstone on the grave of America. And America exists where people self-govern, where people tell their, rel their representatives uh, what to do, how to do it, and where the government is transparent and accountable, almost sounds like a fairy tale now. It almost sounds like, boy, Bruce, do you even think that's remotely possible anymore? I have to. I have to because, Sean, 
generations are coming waves and waves of children having children having children as challenging as it's going to be for them to emerge after all this genetic manipulation and the poisoning of blood banks and the and the you know but vis-a-vis all the folks who got vaccinated and the you know the assaults of the uh 5g and just the toxic environments and the toxic food it's we still have to those of us who have taken a few taken some time to think about what is nature what is life what's a human being what's what's good about being alive what's good about this earth we have to orient ourselves towards that and talk about it and work toward it every single day but um but now america is considering this thing called the restrict act i think it's also referred to as house bill or senate bill 686 in the name of protecting us or shutting down tiktok I haven't read it, but knowledgeable people have told me it's loaded with permission. They call it the Patriot Act 2.0, where the federal government would then be able to monitor deeply everything in our computers, every transaction, every, I believe also everything in our phones. And I got to do my, I got to read it. I got to, I really got to get up to speed about it. I think it's actually in deliberation right now. They may have even voted. It may have already passed this morning and I just, I'm not up on the headlines. We'll see. Looking at some of the principal players in 9-11 then, or maybe front men, we've got the Bush crime family. We've got Dick Cheney. We've got Halliburton. What are your thoughts on them and their roles? They, they make my blood boil because I was a young man while uh, Bush Sr. rose to prominence and was vice president under Reagan and then was president in his own right. And then it was decades later that I I studied him and those kinds deeply in my research for for 9-11. And it's, it's sad and embarrassing, and it's just creepy to contemplate being that kind of a person and there's a lot of them you know it's it's the kissingers it's the brzezinski's it's uh and now it's the it's biden and it's just these 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 people who i i try to think of them as really 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 traumatized psychologically damaged innocent little children and they become psychopaths and we have to protect ourselves from psychopaths but there's a, you know, there's a, I, I, I'm trying to understand, like, how does a person get like that? And I believe it's a, the result of trauma. Now, that's all interesting. After we've gathered the evidence, prosecuted them, convicted them, and sentenced them to, you know, mm-hmm. some punishment for their crimes. After we count for their crimes, that's when we can put our foot up, feet up in front of a fire and contemplate what makes a person do that? How does someone psychologically get to the place where blah, 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 which is interesting in its own right. Cause, cause how a human mind works should it, you know, fascinates me. I don't know if it should fascinate all humans, but it's sure got the potential to, but after they've been brought to justice and you know, the fact that they walk among us, the fact that they receive prizes, Nobel peace prizes, president Obama, um, when the reality is you can prove that the, they aided and abetted crimes if they didn't design them and actually pull the triggers 
the the bushes the bushes are special they deserve they're a real honorable mention because they're a legacy family from uh, skull and bones which is the secret society founded at yale university in 1832 that spawned generations of people who rose to positions of power and then they helped the next generations come into positions of power to turn america into what it is which is you know it's a corporate nightmare it's a it's an oligarchy it's it's aristocracy of of money and you know the the bushes are they're no friend of humanity and yet you know there's too many folks who are you know diehard republicans let's say because they thought that oh bush was was okay so there's so many books written about them about uh the how the father the grandfather prescott bush was a banker on wall street who was involved with many companies and banking institutions that benefited Hitler, funded, you know, the Bolsheviks in the early uh, Soviet Union, basically, again, creating all sides of conflicts. They get out of control and then, great, we get to, you know, balloon a big war and really, really crush them. But my gosh, you know, in terms of fascination, folks, you know, who've never read a book about these kind of creatures, they'll never go back to Netflix if they if they discover these these fiends who walk among us. Yeah, I wrote about Prescott Bush laundering money for the Nazis and their inv- Bush family investments in the the mines at Auschwitz. These people are just beyond belief, isn't it? How psychopathic they are, cold blooded. Yeah, yeah, and and the best we can do is just you know drop little hints at our family gatherings, you know, with all of our, our coworkers, with folks who they just watch the mainstream news every night or it's in the car all day long, and. They still think this is just, you know, conspiracy theory insanity. Okay, that's fine. You know, but I'm standing by what I've I've seen, and, and you know, I'd love to show someone the same evidence, and then like respecting their right as a juror to make up their own minds. Like, don't criticize my verdict if you haven't seen the evidence that I've seen. You know, why do I believe what I believe? That's that's what I like to be asked because I've seen enough to be persuaded about some of these things, and I am persuaded. Yeah, I'd like to include Tony Blair in that list as well. Um, yeah. If you look at these politicians, though, would, do you consider them just front people for higher powers? And if so, who who was pulling the strings for nine eleven? Well, generally, I think they're front people. Generally, I think they're they are they had they developed a lust for power young and learn how to rise through hierarchies until they get elected to maybe Congress or Senate or something like that. Um, And then depending on how personally evil and Machiavellian they are, like a Dick Cheney, he was able to go from being a a congressman to being the CEO of, I believe Halliburton it was. So now he's more than, he's more than, he's not a puppet. He's, he does pull strings or he did pull strings. Maybe he's, he's old and in retirement now, most likely. Um, but today, you know, just, just Biden and, and whatever is running the United States of America, it's not Joe Biden. He is, he is so demonstrably, you know, feeble and addle-brained that, um, he's, he's another living example of rubbing in our face. Like, wow, if we think that that's 
in charge, you know, it, it's, it kind of convicts us as, as people to, cause subconsciously we've got to, we've got to start doubting, if not being disgusted with ourselves to think I'm putting up with that as my president. I'm, I'm, I'm believing that we in our collective wisdom chose and pushed that man to the, up to the position of the presidency. And today, you know, if, you know, if anyone is, hasn't heard of world economic forum and Klaus Schwab and the, uh, the S the S E G goals at the uh, S G D the you know the sustainable development goals S D G. Wow, there's a there's a gal on Facebook I always recommend to folks Julianne Romanello. She posts primarily on Facebook. She's based in Oklahoma, I believe, and she's documenting the smart cities efforts and the public private partnerships that are aligning that are that are taking the public sphere into the private sphere with the global agenda to do that to create 15 minute cities and to create smart this and that the end goal being you know total digital enslavement um so she's a great resource to for folks to just see how the rubber's hitting the road this is how it's being implemented in, in mainstream and in big cities and in, in America. And I know that similar things are happening in the UK and Canada and Australia are just marked for destruction. I see, compl- I see an intentional demolition of these countries, starting with our rights, but in America, definitely our infrastructure and, and, the, and really every day it's, it's a fire hose of psychological warfare of the most scary stuff possible to just, Pound us into keeping our head down and just let me get to work and let me get home. Let me get my booze bottle or get my, my pipe or my CBD or my whatever. And just leave me alone. I'll do whatever you want. Just leave me alone. And and I want to watch sports and I want to watch Netflix because the last thing I can do, the average person is make sense out of what's on the news every single day. It's a madhouse. It's a, it's an effing madhouse. And do you think the war in Ukraine is just an extension of the military-industrial complex selling its wars at the taxpayers' expense? Well, yes, and more, because it's—I believe there's it's, there's money laundering going on at an epic scale, and the intentional uh, manipulation of that situation since I believe 2014 to cue this up, to set this up, to put a big you know, middle finger in Putin's face and to, and to lie to the West, to lie to the West. And especially, you know, how America's leadership and America's media lies to we Americans about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy over there. It accomplishes a lot, not only for the military, definitely for the military, definitely, definitely, definitely to, Oh, we've got many reasons to be very, very scared of Russia and China. So we've got to justify trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars over the years. And an examination of it just raises a lot of doubt. And John, it's when there's just, if, if enough truth could come out from your show and my book and whatever else I do, just to raise a reasonable doubt in more people's minds 
So we don't just green light and approve the next incursion, the next expenditure, the next slaughter, the next invasion, the next bombing, and and maybe hold, you know, put the brakes on some of it, just on some of it, because we're speeding toward a lot of cliffs. We're speeding toward a lot of points of no return, I believe. I'm just going to read a comment then, put out by Jake. Thanks, Jake. He says it's easy to easy to complain about oligarchies and corporate influence, but we live in the healthiest, wealthiest, most advanced society the world's ever known. But couldn't we say that yeah, it's it's the wealthiest and healthiest and the most advanced for the elites? But if you look at America, for example, as a whole, lifespans are now going down. Nearly everybody's on some kind of medication or over which is record profits for big pharma. Things like diabetes off the scale. And they spend the most on healthcare in the world, yet they've got the least healthy people. Isn't isn't that the case in America for the masses? Yes, Sean, and I'm glad you rebutted Jake with that. And I have a lot of compassion for Jake and his worldview because uh, when I was growing up, it was typically folks older than me who really, really thought that. And for years before I looked into it, I probably thought that too. But when when some when people study the kind of things we've been talking about. There's a crisis of bad health in America, so we are far from the healthiest, and that's been for decades. Now the lifespan really is going down uh, demonstrably. I believe since COVID, but maybe it plateaued a little before that. But we are getting sicker and sicker. Those are rising, rising, rising all the time. Us getting sick. For uh, evidence of that, Jake, I refer you to childrenshealthdefense.org. Childrenshealthdefense.org. Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s platform for. Uh, truth to save our children from toxic pollutants for the last 20 years the environment plus <gasps> vaccines and uh, you might revise your uh, impression about how wealthy and happy america is no america is f- far from a wealthy country we are the, the 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 most of the vast majority of americans are paycheck to paycheck completely leveraged by debt and the national economy is a balloon far past the straining point of bursting. And there's tons of evidence to indicate either spontaneously or at a pre-planned moment, the economy will collapse. Our money will become worthless. There'll be real struggles for you know, food and survival, all in the name of uh, trapping us with a digital currency that will come with a lot of strings attached. You know, you can buy this, that, and the other thing. If you take the mandated medicines, maybe, you know, in, in some future scenario. So, Jake, God bless you, but sorry. I disagree, and I hope I've explained why. I think Adam, it was Adam Smith, the economist, who said all great accumulations of debt end in bankruptcy. <laughs> so that might be coming as well. Uh, but we've we've run out of time. I've only got twenty minutes or so left to go over JFK. So let's let's move on to that, shall we? Well, that's actually perfect, Sean, because he represents nothing but hope to me. Um, as I studied his assassination, because I wanted to go back to that open mic in twenty thirteen and talk about JFK for six or seven nights in a row, I studied his his assassination, and then I delivered those talks because his assassination is also a false flag implemented by elements of our deep state elements of, uh, you know, the American government took out the American president. And we discover 
Kennedy's greatness when we look at, well, why was he killed? Well, look what he was doing. He was acting as a real president for the benefit of America, trying to make real for America and for the world America's ideals. He was trying to make America be the, uh, what, it, what, it, what on paper it says we're supposed to try to be and what every president says we are, but we're not. Eyes wide open, he confronted forces that kill to win. My chapter on JFK is the biggest chapter in my book. And if you are capable of being inspired by goodness and fidelity to the truth or the idea behind the biblical verse, greater love than this hath no man than he gives his life for his brother, JFK's martyrdom and sacrifice is awe-inspiring. It's very, very humbling. There's a line in a Bruce Springsteen song, I'll show you courage you can't understand. So, but that also was the plot point at the end of Act Two that killed America. You know, in the classic three-act structure, Act One, Act Two, Act Three, Kennedy's assassination was the climax at the end of Act Two, and it sets up the end of the movie. It's the equivalent in The Wizard of Oz. So the whole movie is this confrontation between forces, right? Dorothy and the witch. Dorothy and the witch. She's struggling to get what she wants, which is a way back home. Finally, there's a confrontation with the witch, and Dorothy douses her with water and vanquishes her opponent. And then Dorothy gets to her end. Kennedy represented we the people versus the folks in the shadows, well represented by Skull and Bones and those kind of people in secret societies and the financiers who were trying to control and take over America, no matter what the people wanted. And they won in 1963. And they did it in public in order to traumatize us, like I say, these spectacular events that just infantile us and make us you know, wrap our arms around, uh, you know, the leg of big daddy, big mommy to protect us and his significance. It's still, and he still inspires people. Um, you know, there's tons of books, uh, shameless plug. You know, I do mark, I'm the marketing director for trying day books, tryingday.com. Sean, you and all your listeners can just find tons and tons of books about so many of these topics that are really well researched, really well documented. And, it's a, it's it's really growing up. You really become an adult when when you when you really acknowledge how the world works. And you remember that scene in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. We have to tell ourselves that we're adults. We can handle the truth. Show me the truth. We should pray every night and every morning. Like show me the truth, gods, and make me big enough and strong enough to be able to handle it. Because it's it's overwhelming. You know, it's overwhelming. Um, but if you if you can be uh, inspired. Reading about John F. Kennedy is a, is a great way to do it, anybody. How did it start to go wrong with Kennedy then? Who did he piss off? Well, the, the direct answer is the CIA and the Pentagon in his first three months in April of 61 with the Bay of Pigs invasion where he did not just do what they told him to do. And he didn't send in the American military to back this, this floundering force. And he realized he was set up to fail. He realized the CIA and the Pentagon told him, this 1,500 guys, it's going to work. 
knowing that, no, that's not going to work. Expecting that Kennedy would then have to throw in the whole military to topple Cuban uh, Castro and take over Cuba and risk World War III with the Soviet Union. And Kennedy wasn't going to do that. And that's, that's really, and also then his policy on Vietnam. Because as soon as he's taken out of the picture, whoop, America's, you know, military and foreign relations, you know, completely changes. And Johnson within a year, you know, helped create a baloney excuse, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which did not happen as the excuse to flood Vietnam with uh, ground troops and kill between two and four million people over there. And Sean, you're going to love this. Working with Chris Milligan and helping him interview a number of his other authors, I have been exposed to the evidence that Kennedy may have been killed as a Catholic by the remnants of those who maintain the legacy of the Knights Templars into the Masons. And people can read all about that at valediction.net on the tab World Peace. There's a, or right on the front cover, there's a great article called From Jerusalem to the Holy Crusades to JFK. And talk about significance again. It was November 22nd in the 1300s when the Catholic Pope issued his order to wipe out uh, the Knights Templars, personified by, I think, Jacques de Molay as the main guy. And the the forces of the Templars, which was a huge organization that competed with the Catholic Church at the time, apparently has a has a its devotees through the generations that that came into the Masons and then came to America and founded America. Now, this is the psychotic wing because there's factions inside everything. You know, not all Masons are bad, but there is this higher echelon of it that maybe. And that's why November 22nd, that's the date in 1300 that. The uh, Templar was were wiped out, so that's the day of their retribution. And so that's a big, again, we've got to follow the evidence, prosecute who we can. You know, um, I'm moving around too much, so I just got blurry. Hopefully I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll hold still and the, the camera will come back into focus. It doesn't matter, but um, it's a deep, it's a deep, fascinating thing. And again, it's the duplicity that you discover studying the Kennedy assassination, the duplicity of the FBI. The duplicity of the, the, the media that for decades and you know, generations we relied on. We thought they were telling us the truth. And it was the another, it was the fatal blow that separated us from our government, separated us from trusting our government. And it destroys what does it do to a people when they realize my government is lying to me about who just killed my president? I'm flipping this down for a second to see if it resets. No, it was not a great reset. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna question from Jake again. Thanks, Jake. Why choose that location with JFK, the assassination location? I assume. Surely there were easier methods. Jake, you're gonna love this. We just did a, a big panel discussion at Trine Day called. Uh, the ignored it's an episode of our podcast called the journey and it's now on youtube and the channel is trying day it's the most recent video i posted it i think just this morning or yesterday episode 121 
the ignored, you know, the truth about JFK. And it's a panel discussion with seven or eight authors about JFK. And Christopher Fulton is one of the authors. And he claims, and I believe him because I know his story. I know what he's been through and I know what he's experienced. So does anyone who's read his book, The Inheritance. He claims that Dealey Plaza had been developed for years as an assassination site. I got the impression, just as business as usual for our intelligence services. And when the decision was made to kill Kennedy, it was used. So that's why Dealey Plaza. Now, again, you pull back, let's prosecute the crimes, but let's remember, it's the site of the first Masonic temple in Dallas. It's configured as a as a triangle which is very interesting to esoteric people who you know study you know the esoteric symbolism of things like the dollar and the capstone and the pyramid and the all-seeing eye and things like that that's that's what the streets are shaped like they all go to that triple underpass there's an obelisk what's an obelisk an obelisk is is a tower in egypt and it's shaped like the washington monument and there's a big one in london there's a big one in washington dc and there's a big one right there. So Dealey Plaza, to, to, to the esoteric analysis, is an outdoor Masonic temple. And it was a ritual sacrifice, the killing of the king in broad daylight, which has ancient history and literature and, and significance, especially in England, going back again to 1100, 1200, things like that. So these psychopaths at the top. They accomplish many, many things when they do something very, very practical, like get rid of a president that threatens their power. So Amanda has asked whether John Lennon is tied into these assassinations. I get the impression, yes. And I refer you to a book called Drugs as Weapons Against Us by John Potash. I believe he's got the best assemblage of the evidence that John Lennon was murdered on December 8th. 1980. I review in a few pages in my book all the incriminating evidence about that. So yes, is the short answer. And we did have John on a week or two ago. So I refer people to that video as well. Mm. So we've had Michael Francis on. He was one of the highest ranking, uh, highest earning members of the mafia capo in the Colombo crime family. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the role of the mafia in the assassination of JFK. And the way I've come to view it over the years is you've got all these vested interests who he's pissed off, the mafia, the CIA, military industrial complex, Texas, where he put the oil tax, um, etc. What what's, What do you view as the role of the mafia in this? By 1963, I have, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, I could be wrong, that the mafia and the intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA, were, were brothers, they were partners, they did a lot of things together. So definitely um, the mafia got Jack Ruby blamed for killing Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, it's an, there's a compelling argument that the, that the fellow we see shoot Oswald isn't Ruby, he probably is. That's a tangent. I'm sorry I even mentioned it here. Let's just say that a mafia-connected guy, Jack Ruby, killed the patsy, the man who was being blamed for the president's assassination. And the, the rest of 
the accusations about the mafia being more directly involved. And even many, there are many writers and articles that say they were the spearheads of it. You know, Carlos Mocello and Jimmy Hoffa, blah, 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 blah. I don't buy it. And it's because of everything that I've seen and all these people that I've talked to about what a, what a really deep intelligence uh, operation that it, that it was. And, ta- and killing a leader and toppling a government was old hat for the CIA by 1963. They had perfected that in the 1950s. So the mafia, I don't think, is prominent at all, really, in the assassination. They help. They help probably with many, many little details, but they help. How pathetic was the official narrative? Of Kennedy's assassination? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a mortification. It's such a lie. It's, uh, it's, it's such an insult to intelligence. It's an insult to the memory of uh, a good man, John F. Kennedy, who was killed trying to do good things for people it's a it's a it's an abomination and uh, people can check out rush to judgment by mark lane the book and the old black and white documentary on on youtube amazing have you watched any of jim mars's videos on it uh jim mars the late great jim mars i have to call him i loved his books i loved every interview he ever gave i loved his personality i never met him um uh crossfire the plot to kill president kennedy uh rule by secrecy uh the rise of the fourth reich alien agenda uh, so many great books by that man jim mars m-a-r-r-s yeah i mean i learned so much from watching the jim mars videos yeah so you're saying there's a world where the mafia and the cia coexist yeah and you know, the, the, the CIA come in and, and have the mafia do parts of things. And then if the mafia gets caught, the, you know, they can blame it on the mafia is how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And in that uh, panel, I just told Jake about JFK, the ignored on trying day, the YouTube channel, uh, Chris Milligan, my boss, who's been studying this stuff for 50 years. His father was in the CIA and told him a few truths when Chris turned 20 and set him studying uh, conspiracy theory land, as Chris calls it. Um, one of the, what came out in that panel discussion was there were lots and lots of soldier of fortune, paid mercenary assassins in Dealey Plaza, just on, on the sidewalk. It's just another way, as Chris puts it, for the intelligence agencies to put their hand on their shoulder and say, you, you know, you didn't have anything to do with Kennedy's assassination, but how are you going to explain you were there? Guys that they like to control by incriminating, setting them up. Um, and your original question about that, Sean, escapes me. I got so distracted by my own answer there. I was saying about if the mafia get caught doing something for the CIA, and the book stops there, doesn't it? This was the mafia did yeah. it. They were behind it. And the CIA is not held accountable. Right, and they have they have many people uh, doing little parts that they don't know what they're part of the whole. But it's always to have leverage over each other, and that's the good news. Is that all these factions, all these entities and organizations, they've got factions that are blackmailing each other. So I think a lot less happens than would because they're all trying to get the goods on each other. But as far as the mafia and intelligence relationship goes, I refer people to a brand new book by Whitney Webb called One Nation Under Blackmail, the sordid union between intelligence and organized crime that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein, published by Trinday.com, two volumes, encyclopedic info about these kind of things yeah whitney's great she's been a friend of the channel for years 
Did you see the deathbed confession of Hunt? Yeah, yeah. And I've met his son, um, St. John, and heard you know him describe um, from the heart and very, you know, that uh, he, he told St. John as much as he could. There was a lot more that St. John would have asked him, did ask him, and never wasn't able to. But what do you make of that deathbed confession? Well, I wrote a book about Barry Seal, and there was a theory that Barry Seal was a getaway pilot for the hit team. So that, you know, what Hunt said tied up in with the hit team thing and the way the bullets came in as well. I mean, hmm. what what's your perspective on how the bullets came in? Was there a triangulation? Yeah, and in my in my book, I I I do a forensic kind of verbal description of the Zabruder film and then bring in the research that I did around that. I I can count, I list in my book, you know, 13, 14, up to 17 bullets. Now, that's a lot of gunfire. Definitely 10 I can track, you know, by the eyewitness testimony all around it. This is not in the Warren Commission. That was a whitewash. They cherry-picked their little scenario. Oh, three bullets in six seconds. F you, no way. Um, it was a it was a slaughterhouse. It was definitely triangulation. It was it was um it was incredible. You know, and uh, what what stands out? You know, Jackie Kennedy's instant courage to go retrieve a part of her husband's brain—that was her instinct. How many people under gunfire just just pee and cry and collapse to the floor to protect themselves? Not Jackie Kennedy. You know, as close as as close as I am to this microphone, she sees her husband's head explode and a piece goes onto the trunk, and she's up like a cat to go catch it. You know. Um, Ooh, I'm getting mad. Listen to that. <laughs> watch out. Watch out. We had um, a guy on called Joey Torres who served 40 years in the California penitentiary, the state, including 10 years with Saran Saran. And when he asked Saran about RFK, he said that um, he couldn't remember what he'd done, what happened, what had gone down. And because he couldn't show remorse, or you know, say that he'd done it to the board. They were never letting him out. So yeah. how does how does that tie in to this? Oh, again, in a heartbreaking way. You know, Lisa Pease a few years ago wrote this great book called "A Lie Too Big to Fail" about Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, and shows, uh, you know, how he was a victim of mind control, most likely hypnotized into position uh, and blamed for something that, you know, he doesn't remember. She shows the evidence of how he very likely was shooting blanks, that the real shooter was behind right next to Robert Kennedy. So Sir hands in front, the real killer is happy to be next to Robert Kennedy, knowing that the diversion Patsy, who's going to be arrested is shooting blanks. Why else would you stand in the line of fire? Um, absolutely tragic how that 70 something year old man, just recently was denied parole again, you know, F you Gavin Newsom, F you California for, you know, you know, all, all that aberration of, of justice and um, the mainstream media lying down like wimps and not, you know, not telling the truth. And if you do tell the truth, good, you'll sacrifice a mainstream career and a mainstream income and you'll be demonized and marginalized and let, and, but you can sleep with yourself at night with a, with a clear conscience because, you know, you're not a, a rat. You're not a fake. You're not a phony. You're not a, a pansy. 
Yeah, and if people want an expanded version of the RFK assassination, watch our podcast with Tim Tate. He's done a great job on it, researched it for decades. Mm. Bruce, this has been absolutely fascinating, but we've run out of time. Would you like to tell the viewers where they could find you online and your books and, and your socials? With pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. And it was a pleasure, Sean. Go to brucetotoris.com. That's a hub. That's my hub. You'll read reviews about the book and the link how to get it. And there'll be links to the podcast I help with Trine Day and my own radio show at tntradio.live. <laughs> well, we salute your work, my friend. Keep it up. And thank you very much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Sincerely. Cheers, Bruce. Good night, then. Good night. Bye-bye. Yeah, what a fascinating guest. Fantastic. And such a soothing voice as well. So thank you, everyone, who's been on the show tonight. Thank you, all the guests. Thank you, you guys, in the Patreon section. Thank you for all your questions. And tomorrow night, what have we got? Oh, yeah, tomorrow night it is the um, Ryan Dawson on Andrew Tate. It's going to be on YouTube at 7 p.m., but it has already been posted to the Patreon wall if you want to watch that one in advance. And then we have got podcasts going out Friday. We've got um, Sunday. It's the Mafia one as well um, with Kevin Ma. So thanks again, everyone. Much love and respect. Cheers to Ash. Cheers to Stephen Knight. Wherever you are in the world watching this, thanks for staying up for, with us. And maybe some see some of you in the live chat tomorrow with Ryan Dawson on Andrew Tate. Thanks, Ray J, Verity, Jake, Fred, VB, Amanda, Agent Orange. Let's see anyone else. Um, Fred. And yeah, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Take care out there wherever you are in the world. Cheers for watching.